This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Happy, happy Thursday to you. <sighs> You've made it. Darn it, I just realized I missed April Fool's Day. Well, it was on a Saturday, so you would have missed it anyways. Well, but we, I mean, we would have, if I had been around, we would have probably done something on the show. We ought, <sighs> we gave you a golden opportunity to have something crazy happen on the show, and you blew it. Yeah, I was out of town, wasn't I? You gave me the opportunity when I was out of town. We ought to just make up our own April Fool's Day so that we didn't miss it. No, it's okay. I think I think we can catch it some other time. I think the people, the listeners, would appreciate it. I think they get uh, a sample of fools every day on the show. What do you mean? What do you mean by that? Well, because it's April. Yeah, and uh, and there's a lot of uh, fools. Yeah. Okay. Don't put yourself down like that. No, I took you down with me. Oh, you're saying we're all doing it? Yeah. Okay. Good. Good times. Hey, happy Thomas Jefferson Day. I mean, I know you guys, it's neat how you dressed up and everything. I like the powdered wig, Terry. Well, I try. <laughs> and I like the, uh, I don't know what you call them, the, the pants, that, the short pants that go to your knees, Jeffrey. Those are nice. Are those pantaloons? I don't know what pantaloons are, really. I don't think those are pantaloons. No. Are they? I, Let's look them up. Um, and I also like your, uh, your stockings. Those are nice, too. So we're also powdered. Also powdered. They're really just my <laughs> wife's nylons. It's the only way he can get them on. That's right. They got <laughs> He's got to powder them up. Today is Thomas Jefferson's 274th birthday. I did the math yesterday. Did you? Yeah. So the, he's an old man. Well, yeah. Aren't you glad we don't live to 274? Yeah. Like that would be... Be a little rough. I mean, you want to live a long time, but 274. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty out there. I mean, there. you're born in the 1700s and you're trying to wrap your mind around an airplane. I mean, come on. Mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. crazy. Yeah. Can you imagine how they'd have to pull him off of United Airlines? Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> What's with the wig, pal? Well, well carefully because he's 274 years old. Yeah. He's very fragile. He yeah. probably would have been a little more polite about it, though. I'm sure he would. He's a diplomat, right? He's the principal author of the Declaration of Independence in 1776. Also, um, by the way, some major events during his presidency. He was the third president of the United States. And uh, he was responsible for the Louisiana Purchase in 1803, which I think was a great deal. Yeah, we we got a we probably got the the better end of that deal. Yeah, I mean the, I mean it was underwater. It was, and then we fixed it, and now it's falling back underwater. Right. Maybe he was going to open a theme park or something. Yeah, he was, and uh, and also it was uh, the Lewis and Clark expedition was also taking place during his presidency. Oh, I love that uh, Superman show with Dean Cain. No. Terry Hatcher. Yeah, we're not going to do that. No, that's not what we're talking about. The Adventures of, of Lewis and Clark? No. Hmm. That's a – again, you went to pop culture. It's almost like you need your own pop culture show, like pop pop culture, <laughs> something like that. Uh, we've got a lot to talk about today. We're also going to get into some form of transportation we'll discuss today. Right. And, you know, it's a surprise. We'll get, we'll get to that. <laughs> Um, interesting, interesting things going on with Donald Trump as well. He seems yep. to be his ratings seem to be going up. I mean, one bombing later, and you, you know, everyone seems to be. And, and 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 I think what it is is he's he's found a secret. I think he talked this week to the New York Post, uh-huh. 
to Fox Business News. Okay, yeah. And the Wall Street Journal. You know what they all have in common? Conservative? They're all owned by Rupert Murdoch. Oh, is that it? Yeah. Yeah. So he's working with Rupert now, and it's bringing his and ratings And he's been up. heard saying that Rupert's been treating me much better than Roger Ailes ever did with Fox News. Wow. Yeah. He's also saying that um, Bannon's, you know, Bannon may be banned. That's also lifting people's spirits. Trump isn't putting forth the positive, supportive message that you would of someone who's holding that kind of high advisor position. And uh, so people feel that's a, uh, a yeah. signal that he may be on the way out the door. It's not a ban. It's oh, not a ban. It's not a ban. It's a bannon. And, and if he's out the door, there's other people speculating that that would mean the the alt-right media that Bannon came from mm-hmm. would uh, turn their guns, per se, on the White House and he, attack. Except, except Donald made a really interesting point. Bannon was only with him for three months. Right. Very but, limited. But he was moving the middle-of-the-road Democrat, mainstream Democrat, long before Bannon came in. So Bannon would maybe move alt-right, mm. but the alt-right have never had this chance of any power no. until right now. Says who? <laughs> so th- this may be their only sh- shot at any power. So would they dare turn their alt-right guns on? Well, if he's not going to uh, follow the agenda. But the reality is, is oh, but Bannon would still have power, like, right? Even if he's out of the White House, he would still be able to deliver the alt-right for Trump. Possibly. So then Trump could still keep him in some form of power. Unless he gets his feelings hurt, then. Yeah, then it gets ugly. Yeah, so this could be interesting. I think the best position to be is Ivanka Trump. Really? Because she's going to be the president someday. I heard someone yesterday ask, is it odd that if you want to get something to the president, I must first speak to his eldest child? <laughs> it seems like old days. Yeah. That's how we used to do it. it. seems a little difficult. Okay. Well, you know what? It's just politics. <laughs> Nothing crazier than politics. So we'll get to all of that fun. Uh, but first, let's do some headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country? President Trump on Wednesday reversed his previous rhetoric about NATO, admitting during a joint press conference with the International, the, uh, International Secretary General that it's no longer obsolete. The Secretary General and I had a productive discussion about what more NATO can do in the fight against terrorism. I complained about that a long time ago, and they made a change. And now they do fight terrorism. I said it was obsolete. It's no longer obsolete. It's my hope that NATO will take on an increased role in supporting our Iraqi partners in their battle against ISIS. I'm also sending General McMaster to Afghanistan to find out how we can make progress alongside our Afghan partners and NATO allies. In that clip, the president was criticizing NATO for not fighting terrorism, mm-hmm. but now they are fighting terrorism. So uh, NATO good now. NATO Na- good. NATO's secretary general responded by pointing out that NATO's been fighting terrorism side by side with the U.S. and Afghanistan and Iraq for the past 15 years and have given over 1,000 lives to the effort. Yeah, but really? The details that don't matter anymore? Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. Yeah. Just standing next to someone saying that, it was just kind of fun to watch. President Trump has said on several occasions that Republicans would be smart to let the Affordable Care Act just collapse on its own so Democrats would be forced to help negotiate a deal to replace the radical, the, uh, radically change, 
replace or radically change the law. Now he is threatening to push Obamacare over the cliff himself. Trump wants to use billions in subsidies to help low-income people uh, afford health care as leverage to drag Democrats to the negotiating table, political reports, citing three administration officials with knowledge of Trump's thinking. Trump told the Wall Street Journal the same thing in a 70-minute interview on Wednesday. Former President Barack Obama approved the estimated $7 billion in cost-sharing subsidies, which help insurance companies pay customers' medical bills. Scrapping the subsidies would likely crash the Obamacare individual marketplaces. So they want to take huh. the subsidies, take them away from the people with Obamacare yeah. to make the Democrats go, okay, fine, and we have to go fine, sit down and we'll talk because you're withholding the thing that helps well, people get works. insurance. When you don't pay bills, you know, people pay attention. I guess. It just <laughs> seems kind a little hard. doesn't seem, yeah, the way we would do it. Normally. All customers who were aboard the United, Air flight, uh, United Airlines flight 3411 on Sunday, April 9th, will receive compensation for the cost of their ticket. This from CNBC yesterday. This specific United flight made international news and police officers were filmed violently removing a 69-year-old passenger who refused to give up his seat on what the airline originally claimed was an over- overbooked flight. It wasn't. Uh, the company has faced major outrage over the incident with CEO Oscar Munoz claiming he felt great shame when he saw the video and the mm. major policy changes are expected to be in, uh, instituted at the airline. Great shame, except they put out like three press releases that didn't to demonstrate shame at all. No. Too little, too late. Yeah. I think what they really ought to do is give everyone in the world a free trip. Yeah. They should have just kept upping the... Uh, That's all you got to do. The compensation. It's all about the money. See what happens. And finally, it wasn't a Big Mac attack, but a hankering for a cheeseburger that prompted an eight-year-old Ohio boy to get behind the wheel of his dad's van and drive drive to the local McDonald's with his four-year-old sister. Yeah. Police officer Jacob Kohler says that the uh, boy pulled up to the drive-thru window at the restaurant around 8 p.m. Sunday after driving from his home where his parents were asleep about a half mile away. The boy just wanted to buy a cheeseburger, according to police. He looked looked up videos on YouTube on how to drive a car. Wow. (laughs) Figured out how to do it. Uh, Witnesses say the boy followed the rules of the road, stopping for lights and keeping within the speed limits. The children did get to eat at McDonald's while they waited for their grandparents to pick them up. No charges have been filed in the case. Against the sleeping parents. Yeah. Yeah. Please tell me he gets cheeseburgers for life now. Yeah. What's McDonald's going to do about that? Nothing. Cheeseburgers for life. That's That's a pretty, you know, industrious child. Yeah. Looks up on YouTube. How to do it. Grabs mom or dad's keys. Gets in the minivan. Buckles his sister in. Dad, I'll save safety first. I told you I was going to get a cheeseburger, Dad. Do with or without you. Tell me. I'm not going to get a cheeseburger. Did he have the money to pay? Apparently. Can you guys break 100 Unless he did it and they just went, uh, this is weird. There's two kids out in this car and they that just pulled them in, fed them, and called the cops. Can't you see an apathetic teen not even noticing that there was a little boy driving the car? Oh, yeah. Would you like ketchup with that? You guys, you got to see this guy. He looks tiny. <laughs> It's the tiniest man I've ever seen. He's so small. Do you even shave? You know, it's one thing to get the car from his home to the McDonald's. It's another thing to get it through the drive-thru. Oh, yeah. Like, it's tricky. I hope it wasn't one of those merging drive-thrus where mm-hmm. you have got you don't know who goes first. Or they have the double window oh. where you pay here and get your yes. food here. That could be confusing. Complicated. That is one of the toughest decisions you can make. Which lane should I go into? Yeah, and do I look at the person's eyes or do I just... Do it by – I just take the choice and go first. And then what happens when you both finish ordering at the same yes. time? Do you yes. try to screech in there uh-huh. before them? Wow, you guys eat at McDonald's a lot. Too much. That was just this morning. Um, did you see this new bottle that scientists have developed for water bottles? No. 
because the tra- the garbage dumps are filled with water bottles. Mm-hmm. And now the this company, Skipping Rocks Lab, has recently developed the Oho. I think that's what it's called. Okay. Yoho? Oh, Oho. Oh. Yoohoo? Ho. Ho. Oho. Yoohoo's better, but go ahead. Yoohoo's really good. Yeah. Uh, this is the Oho, which is an edible water bottle. Hmm. It comes from biodegradable brown algae. Is this the one that Willy Wonka made? No. He took a little drink from it and then ate it. But it looks like it looks like that. It's a little ball. It looks like a like a sandwich bag filled with water, but about the size of maybe a tennis ball. Okay. Or smaller, a little smaller than a tennis ball. And you just pop it in your mouth and bite on it. And it, it, it dissolves in your mouth. Well, well, do they describe the taste, texture? No taste. So why would you eat something that tastes like nothing? And why no, are you, you know, you're, you're a, eating it? It's a water bottle. So why are you that's getting, how you consume your water. Yeah, but the bottle holds what, like an orange full of water? Yeah, so you would need or- you need three or four of these ohos, ohos. I don't know what they're calling it. Well, if it's like a tennis ball, you just can't pop the whole thing in, right? No, this this is a little smaller than that. So it's more oh, okay. like a, a little bigger than a ping pong ball. Oh, okay. So, so it's, it's like a swallow. All right. Boom, boom, boom. Yeah, but mm. I've taken pills bigger than that. Yeah. Well, yeah. This is like taking an, a brown algae water pill. Huh. It's a pretty cool thing. Well, it's an is idea. there algae in the water? No, it's clear as ever. It's beautiful. It uh, it almost it's. They just look like little rolls that you're just going to pop in your mouth of goodness. And then to think of how refreshing. Like think of these marathon runners that are running a marathon. Instead of grabbing a cup, you just grab one of these little ojos. And in like a water fight, they're already in a balloon state. It's like a little water balloon. You don't have to even blow them up. That's great. It's like something you'd see out of a Blade Runner movie or something. And if you want, you can remove the film. Then you just have water. Next thing is like, here's your food pellet and yeah. your water pellet. And you it's, move on. It's a really smart thing. And then you could just wash your hair with it, just pop it against your head, you know? These are going to now be served at Chinese restaurants. Mm. Really? Instead of fortune cookies. Yeah. Do you want if your they put fortune, a fortune water in them, ball? Yeah. <laughs> it's a pretty cool idea. So that that's the future, if you guys wanted to know. Well, good. I've, I've been wondering what the future looked like, and it's a clear plastic ball of water. Yeah. Nice. The future has nothing inside. But when you think about how many water bottles we will be getting rid of, I mean, we're talking billions of water bottles. Gone! Uh, Of course, the brown algae intake will also be up. So if you weren't used to eating a lot of brown algae, guess what? It's happening, folks. Stick with us. We'll take a break. When we come back... We'll continue discussing all that is good to help you live longer, love stronger, lead a healthier life. Stick with us. The New York Stock Exchange is a busy, complicated, fast environment with buyers and sellers exchanging stocks. This, as our guest uh, Stephen Pressman relates, is similar to a used car dealership. The stocks are sold by an intermediary similar to car dealers, and they can be good deals or not so good deals, and sometimes even a lemon will sneak in. But uh, today to talk about it and help us through the complexity of Wall Street is Dr. Stephen Pressman. He's a professor of economics at Colorado State University and an emeritus professor of economics and finance at Monmouth University. And we're honored to have you, Stephen. Stephen, thank you again for being back with us today. 
Uh, thank you so much for having me again. This is uh, this is to me a really I think important discussion. We we found an article that you put together about why Wall Street is like a used car lot, and what I'd love you to do for us, Stephen, is maybe. Just teach us how Wall Street works. Give us some insight, because in the last election, we heard all about Wall Street and and some of the speculating and and some of the speculative pricing. And a lot of us can't figure out how Snapchat makes so much money um, when they don't necessarily have necessarily revenue models yet. So help us understand what's going on with Wall Street. Well, uh, as I said in my article, Wall Street is basically a used car dealership. Uh, if you think of what a used car dealership is, somebody buys a new car, and then they're ready for another car, and so they're going to trade in the old model. Um, and Wall Street is sort of like that. Most of the stocks, almost all of the stocks that trade um, on Wall Street, there's a buyer, there's a seller, and the broker is the intermediary who takes the shares from the person who wants to sell and winds up giving it to the person that wants to buy the stock. Car dealerships are really just like that. You don't want your car anymore. Rather than selling it yourself, which is harder and inconvenient, you take it to a dealer, the dealer buys the car, and then the dealer finds somebody else to sell the car to. There's really no new production. There's no new anything taking place. We're just changing the ownership of the individual firm. Well, and it seems like even at a dealership, the the guy at the Chevy dealership knows Chevys, right? And he knows what's what's unique about this Chevy versus another Chevy, but that's not necessarily true at the stock market, is it? It's true to some extent. There are brokers, and the brokers do specialize in specific stocks, so they have some idea of the the companies and which are good companies and which are bad companies. Um, and really, the the people that are giving advice and dealing are sort of like uh, used car dealers in the sense that if there is a problem, if there's a bad company and you shouldn't buy the stock, then the dealer may not operate in your own interest. The dealer may just be interested in selling you the lemon, just as if there's a bad car on the dealership that car dealer can't get rid of, they may say, gee, this is a good car, there are no problems with it, and you wind up buying a lemon there also. Interesting. So the, the, dealers, you know, the, the dealers in both cases don't have the interest of the consumer, first and foremost. It's the consumer that needs to do a lot more homework. Yeah, I guess we're the ones that would need to, before we before we go down to the dealership, we need to know what we're looking for, what's a good deal, do the research. I mean, this is this is enormous. When you look at the fact that the New York Stock Exchange, uh, your article says, trades about $200 billion a day. I mean, there's money to be made just moving stocks, whether they're lemons or whether they're great deals. Mm-hmm. Just the, the same way that the car dealer makes money by... <clears throat> buying a car and then selling it for more. Um, the uh, the stock dealer makes money by buying stocks and then selling it for a little bit more, and they take a small fraction on both parts of the trade. And so it's in the interest of the, the dealer or the broker for as much activity as possible. Now, so explain, because one thing that um, has me, I guess, a little worried 
about the stock market, and I'm naive to the whole thing, is uh, President Trump is sworn in, and then all of a sudden we get a Trump bump in the in the stock exchange uh, with a 15% gain in the Standard and Poor's, and I know that's been dropping uh, ever since, I guess. But why would we get a bump? I guess it's all speculative, right? It's on future change. A lot of the uh, prices uh, of stocks is is a function of what people think is going to happen in the future. Uh, so there is some of that. And, and I think the increase now is somewhere about 11% rather than 15%. There's been a slight decline fairly recently. Um, at its peak, it was somewhere around 15%. I think some of it was just the uncertainty about the election, and nobody knew what was going to happen. And one famous saying about Wall Street is Wall Street hates uncertainty. Mm. Um, and that's one of the reasons why stocks typically increase by a good amount the year after a presidential election, because there's some sense of stability until the next presidential election. But I think there was also a lot of hope that the president would wind up doing things like reducing regulations on business firms. And so that's going to cut their costs back tremendously, and that's going to result in more profits. More profitable companies means that the stocks are now worth a whole lot more. Hmm. It's so also interesting, all- just something happening today. I mean, like him being, uh, you know, struggling to get the health care initiative through Congress also impacts the stock market as well. Um, well, I, I think that that probably impacts directly the health care stocks a whole lot more than the market as a whole. But the market as a whole is also looking at, can Trump get through his agenda? If he can pass his agenda, get it through Congress and make it law so that there are tax cuts, um, people might have more money to spend, there's reduced regulation um, on businesses so they make more profits. There's a big infrastructure program. And more jobs are created and people have more money and they're spending and everything looks good, that's going to be good for stocks. The, the stocks, even though they're used cars, um, it's ownership of the individual company. And if that company is making more profits, stocks will increase in price. Hmm. And so the, the, the health care issue going on now is about can the Republicans in Congress pass their agenda? Can they do what the president wants? And if people are thinking, well, wait a minute, if he can't get health care through, can he get his infrastructure program through? Can he get tax reform through? Can he get deregulation through? And if all of that's now uncertain and nobody thinks that the president can do that, then the stocks are not worth as much. Interesting. And it, you you made it a real point in your article um, that you, you kind of want to puncture the mystique of Wall Street just simply, which I guess is why it works well to call it like a used car lot. We're just moving cars. Because it helps us – that we kind of understand because the mystique, I guess, gets a lot of credit uh, and blame for, for things that it, it may not even be really doing. And the, the thing that bothers me the most is just the excessive focus on Wall Street rather than what's important, which is production and jobs and income for the economy. And Wall Street doesn't do a lot of that. Right. That's That's a great point because Wall Street doesn't care – about jobs, it cares about about stock increase, mm-hmm. and it doesn't care even about quality and, and the and producing the right kind of products unless it immediately leads to stock increase. And and sometimes the immediate increase in stock prices is good 
immediately for the firm and for the CEOs and for the people who own the stock, but that immediate price increase may have bad long-term consequences, such as the firm's not investing enough in research and development. It's not putting enough money into training its workers so that they can be more productive in the future. And as a result, future profits are hurt and the economy's hurt in the future just because everybody's focused on the bottom line right now. Right. And, um, I, I mean, I guess that makes sense, too, which is why exporting jobs to other countries is such a good idea because it could be directly correlating to stock price. Yeah. You Normally, can make the product cheaper. Yes. If, if they can find cheaper labor or cheaper parts abroad, then the firm can make more profit. It shows up on its quarterly statements. The stock price rises. The senior executives whose bonuses are tied to the stock price wind up benefiting a large uh, amount. And the question then is, can this be sustained? Is this sustainable or not in the long run? And in lots of cases, it's not. Hmm. Is And I, I guess we all assume there's a correlation between quality and innovation and stock price, but not, I guess that doesn't correlate always. No, and in fact, if you think of the innovation, a lot of the innovation isn't going on in the huge companies that are traded on stock exchanges. A lot of the innovation are the small companies, the medium-sized companies, and those companies generally don't trade on stock exchanges. Uh, the, The small companies that start up, they typically get their money from themselves, their savings. They'll take a home equity loan. They'll borrow money from family and friends to start up the business. Then the business gets a little bit bigger, and the next step is they need some money. And so they typically will go to a local bank and see if they can get loans from the bank. It's only when the firms start to think much more uh, broader and larger and expanding a lot do they realize that they need enormous sums of money. And it's at that point they go to Wall Street and uh, they print up shares of stock now. They go public and they seek to sell that stock to get money in for that expansion. Interesting. And, and, and boy, that really opens up our minds because we, we do hear that, you know, Donald Trump, President Trump has so many, you know, um, billionaires on board who have, you know, tycoons that have made big money in Wall Street. And yet if they, I guess a lot of their philosophies may be very short-sighted as opposed to, you know, the middle-sized companies of America. Mm-hmm. Boy, it's it, it really is kind of a tangled web. And I guess... I guess in the end, too, um, we look at this, I guess, is is normal for everything. As we're trying to create healthcare solutions, we might be creating solutions that might move stock prices, but in the end may not be good, you know, deep yeah. down. Yeah. Now, the, the, the right thing is always to try to find the right balance between uh, thinking short-term and thinking long-term. Uh, in, in economic parlance, everything has trade-offs, and you need a sort of figure out the the best way to navigate between the two extremes. Yeah. 
Interesting. There's also this dot-com bomb I want to talk about as well. And are we overinflating some of these uh, tech companies? Let's do this. Let's take a break. We're speaking with Dr. Stephen Pressman. He is a professor of economics at Colorado State University and emeritus professor of economics and finance from Monmouth, Monmouth University and uh, also serves as the North American editor of the Review of Political Economy and associate editor of the Eastern Economic Journal. We're talking about an article, Why Wall Street is Like a Used Car Lot, trying to demystify, if we can, take away the mystique, I guess, of, uh, of Wall Street. Stick with us. We'll take a break. We'll be right back, helping you uh, lead and be better leaders of your own financial welfare. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show. everybody. Today we are talking about basically stock market 101 and uh, joined by Stephen Pressman, who's a professor of economics at Colorado State University. And he wrote an article, Why Wall Street is Like a Used Car Lot. He's helping us understand and hopefully de, uh, demystify, I guess, take away the mystique surrounding Wall Street um, to help us understand. You know what? It might be better to just think of it as a dealership where people bring their cars to trade and you can go to one place to get and pick up a car um, or to pick up a stock. Have I, have I got that right, Stephen? Yep, exactly right. And it's it really is. So the reason we need a Wall Street, it's just it's just I guess it's more it's efficiency. It's right. It's it's the ability to transfer our cars. And if I go to a dealership and they treat me right and I get a pretty good price, then I can maybe turn my cars over more regularly. Is that what our goal with stocks is usually? Um, uh, in a lot of cases, that's the goal with stocks. If you if you think uh, uh, again in terms of the car analogy. If you have a car and the car is a little old and you feel as though you're ready for a new car, you really have two options. One is you can take out an ad and try to sell the car yourself, um, and then you don't know who's going to come by. You don't know who's going to see the ad. You don't know what kind of a price you're going to get. You don't know when you're going <clears> to <throat> be able to sell it. Or the other option is you take it to a car dealer, and the car dealer will offer you a price, and you'll sell it immediately. Right. And in terms of sort of convenience, uh, you're much better off going to a car dealer than you are holding on to the car and then trying to sell it on your own. Yeah. Um, and the stock market does that. It, it gives people what uh, economists call liquidity. It gives you the ability to get rid of something that you don't want anymore. And... Um one of the things I wonder, because one of the ideas you brought up is sometimes these companies will go to the stock market to to raise money. They'll put their company up on the market and you know offer shares, and those new shares can then be sold, and that might generate some money to create new products and other things. Is But that's really, I guess, not what the majority of the stock market is being used for. That's correct. All of the, all of the things that flash on the screens and make front page news when there's a big increase or a big decrease are basically used cars. The the Dow Jones Industrial Average, the S&P 500, those are all old, well-established companies. And it's 
the stock has been out there for many, many years, in some cases decades and decades, and it's just the price of the stock based on, on trading that particular day or in some cases that particular minute. And that's all that's happening is the price of the existing shares are going up and down. And those were the shares that at some point way back in time were shares that were printed up and sold because the company needed some more money. Hmm. Um, and so new firms that are starting up um, will print up shares of stock to try to obtain money to expand. And those are called uh, IPOs, initial yeah. public offerings. And that's actually now one of the, the the functions of a stock market that's good and important is it provides money to firms that are now thinking of moving from an intermediate size to a large size and now it has access to lots and lots of money um, and also uh, people might be willing to buy the shares of stock because they know that on a moment's notice they could go to a broker or a dealer and just sell the stock. Yeah, and, and be done. And they're in and out of it, which I guess leads to kind of the the day trader mentality where people could be selling, you know, they could just they could keep the stock for half a day, right? Or a few minutes and just ride it for a little bit and then sell it. Yeah, and it it's it's even worse than that. And this is this is sort of the part of the stock market that I don't like. The uh the day traders uh with uh, the minute traders or really the the millisecond traders um uh, michael lewis's flash boys um an excellent book described uh the the building of a cable between chicago and new jersey to try to be able to make trades um uh, just a, a few milliseconds before everybody else so if some news becomes public by sitting at a terminal and hitting buy or sell, wow. they could sell or buy before everybody else by just a tiny fraction of a second. And they're able to make money because they get in faster than anybody else. They've made their money, and then they can get out, and they've, they've made their money. Yeah. But I think the real question is, I mean, is this something that contributes to a well-functioning economy? I mean, is this what we want to you know, some of our best minds to do right no. sit and and trade stocks, hold on to them for a fraction of a second, and then sell them to make a, a large sum of money. That just doesn't seem to me to be something that will lead to the long term viability and growth and and functioning. Uh, of an economy. Oh, no, I, I agree. And uh, almost it seems like kind of just as maybe dangerous is so many people that jump onto a, an initial IPO and that they're excited about because they use Snapchat. And yet, mm -hmm. and so all of a sudden, Snapchat, is it possible for it to be so overvalued because of just enthusiasm and excitement that it, but it's not, doesn't actually carry the worth? Yeah, well, for, for most IPOs, it's really very difficult to know what these firms are worth. Yeah. Um, you know, there's no, there's no long-term history of what these firms have done. There's no way to track, you know, the way we could track for, like, a retail outlet, what sales have been and what profits have been over dozens and dozens of years. Right. 
and there's no way to assess. Okay, wh- you know, what are they? What are they doing in terms of expansion? That's a little bit different from what they've done before, and is this likely to be a little bit better or a little bit worse? Those are reasonably good things that you know are, we should be able to make estimates about. But when you have a brand new company that really hasn't been out there for a long time and is now trying to expand in a massive way, we've got no history to rely on to be able to figure out whether or not this is going to wind up making a lot of money or not. And then it becomes driven by human psychology. Mm. Which may not be as, I mean, as as healthy, I guess. And one of the things I worry about is, is there a bubble? We hear people talking about there might be a bubble out there with some of these tech companies as they actually settle into what they might actually be worth. Is the market going to correct itself? You know, is that is that a natural function of this market? Or is it too inflated by day tra- traders and others uh, who are in the market? Well, probably the best uh, measure of whether stocks are inflated or not that people look at is the um, ratio of uh, uh, stock prices relative to the earnings of the firm. And historically, um, over 100 years or so, uh, for the S&P 500, that ratio has been somewhere around 15, and now it's somewhere close to 18. So it's a little bit higher. But it's not enormously higher than it's been historically. Yeah, is it's it's interesting too because we have our four hundred one ks. We have so much wrapped up into this, and yet, really, so many of us, I feel like, are are so uneducated about it. What would you recommend to the listeners to make sure that they are they're not going in and buying the lemon or just you know taking the advice of somebody that maybe just trying to you know make money for themselves. Um, well, there, there, there are a couple of general rules, um, and uh, the, the general rules are, number one, don't put all of your eggs in one basket. Um, and that means that you should have uh, stocks that are somewhat diversified. Um, a, a good way to diversify is just to buy some mutual fund, which, is, uh, it, which purchases the stocks in the S&P 500. So basically, you own 500 different companies. They're all well-established companies, uh, S&P 500 companies. And then the second rule is, since the stock market is to some extent completely irrational and you never know when there's going to be a boom or a bust, the best strategy is generally just buy and hold. Yeah, stay in. Um, Stay in. Don't panic when things get really horrible. Um, don't start buying when things are going way up, thinking it's going to go up forever. And then, you know, the third thing is find a mutual fund which has very low fees. Um, think about going to a car dealership. Um, you want to go to a car dealership that's going to give you the lowest price, um, which basically means that the car dealership that's making the least amount of money. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You want, you don't want to end up spending all this money just to get the car. And be yeah, under. You don't want to. You don't want to. Yeah. You don't want to. You don't want to pay more than you have to yeah. for the car that you buy, and you don't want to pay more than you have to for the stocks that you own. So you want to keep your costs of buying as low as possible, and you want to diversify. And diversify just means buy buy some indexed fund uh, with relatively low costs, and then just sit on the damn thing. <laughs> 
Yeah. Do, do you sense um, we talk a lot about President Trump? We hear a lot of news about how, you know, foreign nations interpret his his personality and some of his behavior is because if the stock market demands some pretty predictable, consistent um, and, and actually thrives in its consistency of of the status of the country. Um, do we need to worry about a president that maybe is willing to mix it up a little bit more, maybe make a comment that others may not make? Uh, yes, I, I, I certainly worry about uh, what the president is going to be tweeting at 3 o'clock in the morning and how that might affect both the stock market in general and particular companies. Yeah. Um, and so that, that certainly is a worry. Um, and uh, as long as we've got a president who's completely unpredictable and can do weird things at any point in time, we need to worry about the potential for greater uh, volatility in the stock market. Because we, we see that he could bring down the stock in a company by 10, 5%, 10%, 3% by just simply dissing their product or taking them on. I mean, it's a, the companies now are preparing for him with PR blitzes to be able to respond immediately. Yeah. yeah, well, and remember, he can also do good for companies. Absolutely. Well. So it works. It works both ways. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, that that becomes a whole new world of politics, doesn't it? Trying to manage um, manage his mercurial ways. Well, we appreciate you, Stephen. Thank you so much for your great insight and your great work there as professor of economics at Colorado State University. Thank you again for having me. You bet. We'll have you back. Uh, making it simple, folks, taking something as complicated as Wall Street and helping us understand it using a great metaphor, the used car lot. We'll take a break, my friends, helping you be the best in the world. We'll take a break. Be back. Stick with us. When you're alone and feeling down in the dumps, be grateful you don't live in town town. I have lived here a little less than a year, and it really blows town town. Just look at the incompetence of the mayor of the city. His power plants and public parks are anything but pretty. How did he win? The spies fly much higher here You can't escape all the humming Of drones in the air above Town, town You're gonna hate it here Town, town Get out while you can Town, town Everyone's watching you Town, town You'd better scurry, there's a mysterious slurry moving down the road. Town, town, don't hang around, the noxious gas will surround you and melt your clothes. Town, town, so head down to the border and immediately cross over, or you'll be decomposing long before the night is over, rotting alive. The nights are so scary here, so please remember we warned you, we told you to steer clear of town, town, a grimy place for sure, town, town, don't stay a minute more, town, town, death is waiting for you. 
town, 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 town. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Jeffrey uh, spinning some vinyls for us. Hey, um, because because Jeff just played the uh, Town Town song, I think it's important that I update everybody on my my adventure as um, the mayor of Townton Abbey. The this is my sim my simulated city from the game Sim City that I play on my phone. Uh, I have grown my own town. I wanted to get a feel, a little taste for what President Trump is trying to do. And so I built my own town called Townton Abbey. And I have a just a booming downtown area called Towntown. Um, but this the city is up to 123,000, if we're rounding people, 123,000 uh, fans, raving fans, with a 98% happiness. Raving lunatics? No, 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 raving fans. Not lunatics, but they're really happy with what's going on in Townton Abbey. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, the people are happy. A lot of neat things are happening. We just opened up uh, the um, lighthouse. It's now there and available. Pretty soon I'll be opening up some yeah, you, other beach amenities. You had to get rid of, of that problem of all those ships crashing. Yeah, yeah. Because I need my ships to come in. That's how we. That's how we pay for a lot of the goods. Um, that's how we also. I also opened up an airport, which is a really big thing. Um, I also just opened up my mountain resort area, and, and just started putting some condos up there in the mountain resort area. And there's actually a decline in passengers being removed from the airplanes too. No, that's interesting. We we did have an issue uh, removing violently removing two or three people from airplanes. And I've decided to give them a free lunch or they can get tased and dragged off the plane. A free lunch? That's all it takes. So it's either a free lunch to move your seat or we have to tase you. So most people are taking the lunch. Yeah. Anyway, Townsend Abbey, it's doing so well. um, And I I don't know. I don't want to brag. But to be a mayor with 98% happiness... And by the way, my people were at 100% happiness until I had to do some reconstruction. Um, but Are you referring to B? To B? The the singer in that song who was clearly not pleased with Town Town. No, 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 no. no yeah, B, B, I don't know where B is. She can't be, we can't find her. B is conveniently. Missing. Conveniently, she's. I think she went to live with her family in another town. Aren't they all dead? I think it's called Simpsonville. And um, we accept refugees in Simpsonville, <laughs> and they're flocking. They're coming in droves. Yeah, ours are coming in drones. I am about. I'm about. Uh, I'm about three golden keys away from being able to open up a drone center. You already had drones. You've got drones spying on people. That's why there's the happiness level, because they don't feel like they can be anything else. No, I don't have that yet, but but we're working for it. So if you're you're a member of Townton Abbey, if you're on SimCity, you can go find my my city and buy my goods. 
just just look up my marketplace, Townsend Abbey. Um, there's no money being made here for real. It's just I'm I'm going to grow this town to about a million people, and then I'm going to look to international takeovers where I start owning the world and slowly start making it be the way I want it to be. <laughs> and luckily, we have a few citizens who are wise to your act already. Yeah, my mom's all over it. She's really mad about how aggressive I'm being on it. So, Anyway, just a little update on Townton Abbey. A lot of people, a lot of people, I mean, a lot of people calling in wondering. So there you have it. We'll take a break, my friends. Next hour, we'll continue the discussion. Stick with us, helping you be the best you can be. We'll be back. The Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1 855 Chat BYU. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to The Matt Townsend Show. This is the place where we give you the latest, the greatest research about how to deal with everything in your life. Today, no exception, we will be talking about how to deal with those. Uh, kind of ornery, angry employees that you work with. Not that we don't have any of that here, but at other locations, people just are ornery. Huh. And how are you supposed to deal with an ornery person? Embrace them. Well, I think if you embrace an ornery, angry person, you might get hurt. You might even get pulled off an airplane. Treat them with kindness and they'll treat you with kindness. Oh, okay. Yeah. There you have it. I fixed it. <laughs> problem, problem solved. Be kind. Be kind. We, we are going to learn that the, these people may be angry for a reason. Really? Yeah. Some are sad. Some just have a bad family life. Some ate a bad shrimp salad. Yes. At Billy's. That is a real, real concern. There. Excuse me. It's Blilly's. <laughs> Blilly's. Some really wanted to celebrate Thomas Jefferson's birthday today, 274th birthday, and nobody seems to care. Some had a hope in their job that it would take them to another level. Others just trying to make the bills. Mm. Whatever you have, for some, they're just angry, ticked off. But for Jeff Simpson, it's just another day at the office. Wow. Thank you, Jeff. That was a beautiful moment. (laughs) Brought to you by our friends at Blilly's. (laughs) <laughs> just very sad happy um, you're okay pal you're okay I wish Jeff would get more angry he doesn't get angry very easily he just cries a lot have you noticed he wears his emotions on his sleeve he's not an angry and it's man. mainly because he's trying to wipe his tears yeah yeah he needs a Kleenex you know he's got very wet sleeves that's gross <laughs> He's sad. You know what's really affected him is this this guy being pulled off the airplane. Yeah. And he's not just even mad at, at the guy on the airplane or the airlines. He's mad at everyone on the plane. I, I don't usually get so preachy. No, but I like that. I think it's a really interesting point. 
Well, everyone I, else on the plane could have seen a man in distress. Somebody on that airplane could have taken $1,000 to get off the plane. Well, and I made the point, too, that the sound that came from this man as they were grabbing him, it, it sounded like a shark attack. Now, if all these people were witnessing a shark attack, don't you think they'd put their phones down and maybe try to help? Yeah. No, they kept filming. Yeah. That is a bad day when nobody – because it seems like the entire plane could have, like, had a revolt. Well, yeah. they also could have all been arrested and put in Gitmo because that's what they threaten you with when you affect the operation of a plane. Yeah. But again, there very legitimately could have been people on that plane who could not afford to lose yeah. that flight. And they maybe had that, to get home. Like what if that doctor had a surgery scheduled tomorrow morning? Right. But if you can't miss that flight, put your phone down and stop filming. Yeah. Just show some courtesy to a fellow human being being attacked by sharks. Go try to grab – You don't have to do anything, but don't film it. I mean, I guess they were maybe filming it for his sake. Even if all you come out with is a torso, at least you tried. (laughs) The other concern you have now, right? So the doctor gets pulled off the plane. Yeah. It's like, wow, this guy, what's going on? And then then his hometown paper in Louisville writes this whole thing about his background and some yeah. criminal things that have happened then to him. Then they start bringing that out. See, so, now that I don't like. So I don't as, care for that. As an individual, at what point do, in a situation now do you go, oh, boy, I better cooperate or all this is going to yeah. come out? Big Brother's going to start to crush me. What, what are people going to find out about me? How is the internet going to revolt against me because of something I did in the past, yeah. even though the two have the two situations Nothing. are connected? Yeah. And, and what about the other three we don't even hear about? The other three that just grabbed their bags and got off. I mean, I would have been one of those three that just said, oh, okay, you're just going to oppress me? Okay. Let me get my headphones. And they got off the plane. The uh, United announced yesterday everybody on that flight got got recompensated for all their money. They got refunds all Mm -hmm. across the board. So the people that got off, they got all this money and a voucher. Do they also get refunded? Oh, I, I don't know. Or do they consider oh, what they – Oh, I bet they do now, yeah. We're not going to have this, oh, we gave you a, yeah. a voucher, you're okay. They're going to just refund the ticket price? That seems unfair. Well, it's better than what they probably started with, which was like a little pair of airplane pilot wings. <laughs> we'll give you the wings <laughs> you and wings. a bag of peanuts. <laughs> oh, man. But it sure beats other airlines that – I mean, it's it's just – Jimmy Kimmel brought up a really good point. You can be as mad as you want, but the next time you go look for an airfare, as soon as United is a dollar cheaper than everyone else, you're going to go with United. But we need to stand against all of these people. I don't. I was on some airlines. I'm not going to name names, but holy cow, the way they treat you like cattle is crazy. Some people stand up to issues like this. Some people just lay down and go limp for these things. Yeah. Uh, speaking of different tactics, laying down and go I, being stiff and limp at the same time, I I told you I sat between two large gentlemen that were just they were really muscly, beefy guys, but I I couldn't I it wasn't I didn't sit naturally for four and a half hours. I sat in a very unnatural position with my right shoulder and my left shoulder actually meeting in my front of my body. Um. Who's compensating me for that? You sat between Hans and Franz? I really did. Wow. They're very nice gentlemen. They slept beautifully right on my shoulder. Um, you had to wring out your shirt, too. There was yeah. some drool on there, I believe. Yeah, we were Not very yours. Close. But again, no, none of this is going to stop because 
nobody says anything. We just all complain about it. But then when we get online, we go for the cheap one. Come on, America. Let's fix it. Rebel. No. That's why I always laugh when Southwest is uh, landing and they make the announcement. We understand that you have many choices when you fly. It's like, no, we don't. You're the cheapest. Actually, you were the cheapest. <laughs> and um, you're the one that only guaranteed me the seat. And now I found out that anyone can take my seat. Mm. Anywho, we'll get to all that fun, folks. Plus, again, of course, covering the three things that you can learn from your angriest employee. Very important lessons there. Uh, And, of course, um, some other just empty news, we call it. A South Dakota man is fined for not having his snake on a leash. We'll get to that. It seems counterproductive (laughs) to have a snake on a leash. Um, Anyway, stick with us for that. But first, let's get to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country? Secretary of State Rex Tillerson waited for hours, reportedly, until uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin decided it was time to sit down and meet, finally. uh, They talked about the unsatisfactory state of U.S.-Russia relations at their meeting. Wednesday, uh, Tillerson also had this to say in Moscow. We further discussed approaches to improving our channels. We frankly discuss the current state of U.S.-Russia relations. I express the view that the current state of U.S.-Russia relations is at a low point. There is a low level of trust between our two countries. The world's two foremost nuclear powers cannot have this kind of relationship. Full of personality, that one. It sounds like, uh, are they meeting in a restroom? A little bit, a little bit. I'm, I'm waiting for the hand dryer. They need, to start. They need some uh, step up the audio visuals there from the from the Kremlin. Tillerson's <laughs> that's funny. Tillerson's assessment of the relationship between the U.S. and Russia echoed comments made by Putin earlier this uh, earlier Wednesday. Tillerson said he and Putin have agreed to establish a working group to improve relations. Oh, that's good. Yeah. So we'll have, we now have a working group and more meetings. President Trump on Wednesday said the U.S. dollar is getting too strong. And contradicted his campaign era self on whether or not China should be labeled as a currency manipulator. Last week, he called them the world champion of currency manipulation. Yeah. He also goes, I think our dollar is getting too strong. And he goes, partially that's my fault because people have so much confidence in me. But that's hurting. That will ultimately, it's like a humble brag, right? Yeah, it's a humble brag. Yeah. (laughs) So it was Trump told the Wall Street, this is all in a Wall Street Journal uh, interview that he did, which immediately sent the dollar tumbling to session lows. Attaboy, Donald. (laughs) Good job. Mr. Trump said the reason he has uh, changed his mind on one of his signature campaign promises is that China has been, um, hasn't been has been manipulating its currency for months and because taking the step now could jeopardize his talks with Beijing on confronting North Korea. In other news, Chinese state-run newspaper printed a warning to North Korea about any further weapon tests. North Korea is expected to conduct a sixth weapons test this weekend. The likely date for the test is either Saturday or Sunday during the celebrations to mark the 105th birthday of North Korea founder Kim Il-sung, the mm-hmm. grandfather of current leader Kim Jong-un. Yeah. That's when they drag out all the military and all oh, the Oh, those are great. That is a great around. party. And the fireworks, unbelievable. And they light up a... Nuclear, apparently sarin-tipped missiles. Allegedly. That's what China or Japan. Japan is saying, yeah. Mm. Other news, Walmart customers will soon see discounts on over 1 million online products if they pick them up in the store. That's the catch. Hmm. This out of Bloomberg. The new pickup discount program will launch April 19th with 10,000 initial price cuts as the company attempts to 
keep up with Amazon's delivery juggernaut. Wow. Amazon currently dominates the American e-commerce market, controlling 34% to Walmart's less than five. Analysts project Amazon is on track to control half of the online sales market by as soon as 2021. Wow. Other stats that came out of different uh, commer- what commercial statistics, I guess. Uh, some 95% of U.S. consumers shopped at one of Walmart's 4,700 stores last year or on its website. Wow. 95% of U.S. consumers. I'm one of them. See, Walmart's problem, they don't have the two-day shipping. But then again, neither does Amazon. It was followed by McDonald's at 89% of U.S. consumers went to a McDonald's last year. 89%. Target is at 84%. Slacker. I love Target. That means more than five out of six U.S. shoppers made a purchase at one of these chains. Walmart, Boy. McDonald's, but, Target. But would you not, if you're Amazon, even though you're up, you're so far ahead. Yeah, I'd be terrified to have Amazon or Walmart gunning after me, right? Because they can lower their prices. Yeah, they're saying that it'll save on shipping because you order it and you show up to the store and get it. So they'll cut the price so there's no shipping. Hmm. Other news: uh, scientists discovered 50 new spider species during a research trip to Australia's outback. Oh, was that in my basement? They found a new species of peacock spider, which dances as part of an elaborate courting ritual, an ant-eating spider, which imitates its prey, Ooh. and a tarantula that swims. Now, why would you imitate your prey? Because then they, they think this you're is, one of them. And this they, is what you're going to look like I'm when I eat really you. I'm just a really big ant. Scientists believe they have discovered less than half of Australia's spider species. Scary. They know about 3,500 spider species in Australia, and that's just what uh, what they've looked at. They, they think there's between 9,000 and 15,000 out there. Different so species. What they're saying is don't go to Australia. Yeah, pretty. that's really bad for Australian travel. Not only do we have spiders, we have a variety for you to pick from. I want to see the peacock one. And yesterday there was a problem with uh, Google Home which is kind of like the Amazon Echo. Okay. Right? Yeah. It's a personal assistant in your home. You call uh, it a name. Isn't it called Homey? No, it's called Google Home. It's called um, Echo. Echo. So just after, now Burger King put this this ad out, right? So yeah. just after Burger King unveiled its new advertisement designed to hijack your Google Home, right? They, they In the middle of it, they go, Google Home, read Wikipedia entry about the Whopper. Right, it starts yeah. reading the Whopper. Right, so <laughs> the long-winded description was Whopper that you read the Wikipedia. It says Google has disabled the functionality. It was fun while it lasted. Google Home will no longer respond when prompted by the specific Burger King commercial that asks Whopper or what is the Whopper burger. It does, however, still respond to the top result from Wikipedia when someone else, a real human user, not that commercial. So somehow Google was able to take the commercial. Put it into the software and make it so that Google won't listen to that voice. Oh, that really? Specific voice. Okay. In the process of doing this, people started editing the Wikipedia entry. Yeah. And then, and then playing it back to see what it sounded like. They put in uh, descriptions including cancer causing, a oh, cho- a chocolate candy because you know whoppers, um, and ingredients like toenail clippings and other gross things. <laughs> um, so yeah. So then then all of a sudden it was shut down because they locked the account on. People Wikipedia. are messing with it. Yeah. It was pretty funny. Boy, that could have a lot of fun, though. For repercussions. about an hour. Yeah. It's scary what's happening with tech. It's just taking over our world. And now it can be, it can be played with so easily. Yeah. So now you won't even know what's really in a Whopper. A common thing is when you're listening to, say, a podcast or something, and somebody calls it the – instead of calling it the Echo, they say Alexa. 
Yeah. And then everyone's device goes off because that's the, the word you use to activate it. <laughs> so what we ought to do is – so if we, we ought to just say Alexa. Yeah. If you say that a lot and someone's listening out loud, then Alexa starts freaking out. And then if you say Alexa, buy, and then toss out a product. Yeah. Yeah. I just caught a really interesting um, – my, my Siri turned on automatically apparently huh. and started just taking notes. Yes. And was I was apparently dictating the entire show to Siri. Oh, nice. She did a great job. Good. She's a wonderful, wonderful helper. Hey, a crazy story from South Dakota. A man gets a $190 fine for snake without a leash. Was it his pet? Yeah. Then there's pet leash laws. A man was fined for allowing his pet snake to slither freely in South Dakota Park, said the animal control officer suggested that he use a leash to restrain the reptile. Jerry Kimball said he initially thought the recommendation was a joke because it was April Fool's Day. But when he was fined $190 and ticketed last week for animals running at large, by the way, that thing wasn't running, right? Slithering? Slithering at large. He was literally asking me to put a rope around my snake, Kimball said. I was like, dude, no. Dude. I was dumbfounded. (laughs) Kimball was approached by the officer after a woman complained that his fire bee ball python was roaming freely at Falls Park in Sioux Falls. The animal control supervisor, Julie DeYoung, said the city ordinance requires all pets to be leashed or restrained in public. Mm. And so how do you effectively restrain a python? Put a rope around it. But then it can't move, can it? It can't. You can suffocate it. What about its little neck? (laughs) Yeah. Which is where? Doesn't really have a neck. Yeah. Don't you hate it when, yeah, his neck is the same size as his head? It's ridiculous. You can't even find his little neck. Yeah. So anyway, uh, that's the ordinance. That's it. Sorry. If you want to be in public and your animal's not on a leash, then you're going to get a $190 citation. Well, okay. DeYoung, by the way, added that uh, the snake lovers should be more sensitive to the aversion that many people feel toward their animal. Mm. Know what I mean? You know what this reminds me of? What? That movie that came out about snakes in a car. Yeah. Hold on. I think I have a clip from it. I have had it with these mother-loving snakes in this monkey-fighting car. Take that, snake. Now you history. Whoa. That's a I, that, you know what? That gives me the chills every time I listen to that. That's Samuel Samuel L. Jackson's in that one. Um, yeah, he doesn't quite sound the same these days. Well, I think he's getting older. He's aging. Yeah. You know what though? I think after they came out with this story, yeah. they're gonna do another movie uh called Snakes on a Leash. <gasps> Scary. I've had it with these pancake-flipping snakes on these friendly, disagreeing leashes. That sounds good. That's going to be good. Yeah. Snakes on a leash? Yeah. They've had snakes in a plane, snakes Snakes in a a car, car. and now snakes on a leash. Now, that was Samuel L. Jackson again. Yeah. He's in every movie. He really is. He must not like going home. But I'm glad that he cleans up his language for BYU Broadcasting. 
And I didn't know snakes could flip pancakes either. Oh, yeah. They can flip anything. You should see them make waffles. Fantastic. We'll take a break, my friends. Uh, When we come back, we're going to be talking about three things you can learn from your angriest employee. Don't just throw them away. Instead, let's figure out what, uh, what we need to learn. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. You know, we've all had that coworker or employee that is seemingly irrational, you know, uncontrollable, maybe angry at work. Some of us have probably thought, how did such an unpleasant person ever get a job here in the first place? The answer is that they probably weren't always angry. Our next guest is uh, Steve Goldstein. He argues that employers should look at angry employees as a challenge to fix the work environment. Maybe they're the canary in the mine uh, teaching us what else is going on uh, in the workplace. And we we might want to use their anger to to help us understand what corrections we need to make. You can uh, find uh, more from Stephen at stephendgoldstein.com is his website. Stephen, thank you for being with us today. Nice to be with you, Matt. This is, a, I think this is a really great way to look at this, because our initial inclination is just to get rid of these people, right? They're angry. They're mean. Yes. Get rid of them. They're angry. They're mean. They're not helping you. They're not serving you. And you wonder, uh, why are they uh, standing in front of you uh, and making your life so different, difficult and miserable? And so um, when an employee is angry, the response is you get to... You start to become angry, too, as you interact with them. So it's not just limited to to the employee himself or herself. I mean, we didn't hire him angry, did we? I mean, that's not what normally we'd see. So if we're showing if they're showing more signs of anger or frustration, there's something else going on. Right. I think uh, I, I think there, it's probably fair to say that most uh, hiring managers would not hire a person who, who is visibly angry and someone who doesn't look like they really want to work there. So then the question obviously is what caused them to be angry? And, um, you know, there's a lot of different reasons. I think the, the problem uh, that I've observed is most people accept the fact that they're angry. Most leaders accept the fact that they're angry. In fact, uh, the Gallup organization does a survey every year around employee engagement, which is tangentially related to this. And um, the the most recent survey that came out a few months ago said that 70% of all employees are disengaged. Mm, Yeah. Disengaged. And 20% of of them are actively disengaged, which means they're physically present, but they really don't want to be there. Yeah. And, you know, so some portion of that group is also not only disengaged, they're angry. And what I have found is uh, as you start to talk to these people and you and you find out why they're angry, in most cases, there is some some real root causes that have caused them over a period of time uh, to exhibit that behavior. I mean, normally when we think of angry employees, it's not for a one off situation that just happened 20 minutes ago. A lot of this is persistent. And it happens, you know, over a period of time. And then it really starts to get embedded inside of you. And, of course, one of the problems of that is your fellow co-workers um, 
can't help but notice that. And then they decide, do they want to be like you or do they want to be uh, like other employees? Yeah. It, you have such a great background in this um, because you you deal with leadership in general. You've been driving change on teams and stimulating innovation. And yet you also uh, are the president of Engaged Leadership Advisors. So the, the, the poll that came out, the Gallup poll came out, I'm sure, after um, you were already working on engagement. So th- this isn't a new problem, is it? No, it's not a new problem. And um, and I think what's new is that people are starting to recognize when I say people, um, uh, C-suite leaders uh, are starting to appreciate the fact that engagement is not just coming in in the morning and saying, hi, how are you? And, and sort of being nice. Um, also, uh, some major investors uh, like CalPERS, the uh, pension fund on the West Coast, and Blackstone, which is the largest money manager in the world, have now this year incorporated assessing management teams' levels of engagement as part of their investment decisions to, uh, to decide whether they want to invest in a particular company. And thirdly, uh, the ISO standards, the global international standards um, that, that sort of, you know, regulate everything uh, that happens on a global basis are in the process of, of developing uh, ISO standards for management around engagement. So there's a lot of new uh, attention uh, and, and, and light being shined on the subject. And I think, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's really important uh, for leaders to understand that they need to be engaged to you know, run their companies more effectively. Yeah, what what a what an interesting idea that managers. So in, before an investment group comes in, they're they're not just going to check, you know, the ROI of the company and you know maybe some of the harder metrics. They're actually going to look into some of the softer metrics like engagement. That's right. powerful. It's, exactly, it's very powerful, and and you know it's it's a little tricky, obviously, Matt, because yeah. <clears throat> when you want to analyze financial performance, I mean, that's easy. I mean, everybody's been doing that for a long period of time. Um, Managing engagement is much, I mean, there will be some quantitative measures, but it's basically qualitative in nature. And, um, you know, I think what I do when I go into a company uh, for the first time is I, I have individual meetings with each of the leaders on the leadership team which I don't think is very unusual. But then what I do is I'll go visit a service center or a factory or a retail store and meet with the bottom level of the organization. Um, and what I, what I always find literally 100% of the time is I learn more about what's going on in the company from dealing with the frontline folks than I do with the leaders because the frontline folks are the ones who are seeing what's really going on. It's unfiltered, it's unfettered, um, it's unsophisticated, but it's real and it's raw. And from that, you know, you really get a sense of what the issues and opportunities and challenges are in a company. And I find that when sometimes when I go back to the leadership team and I say, here's what I found out, it's not uncommon for them to look at me in, in shock. Like this is like, happening how did you here. Find that out, yeah, yeah. In our company, how did that happen? I said, "Well, when was the last time you went and visited?" Um, so, um, 
and I can tell you that uh, this this works. I mean, because when you are able to bridge the gap between the leaders in the company and and the folks who are actually uh, interacting with your customers, you know, here's an interesting statistic. You take an organization like the Gap, there are 18 levels, organizational levels, between the CEO and the sales clerk in a store. Wow. And, well, you say, wow, that's interesting. But here's the more interesting thing. The only one who's interacting with the customer when you go in to buy a shirt is that clerk. So whatever you do, whatever the great strategies and plans and, 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 and initiatives you, you put forth, it all congeals at the intersection of a store, in this case, a store where I go in to buy a T-shirt and I'm dealing with this part-time clerk. Yeah. And so if you don't really understand how to get that person on board, how, are you, how do you expect to have successful results of all these schemes you've cooked up? Right. Yeah, because you've, you've talked about schemes or other training <laughs> programs, development programs, yeah. incentive programs. We've changed, you know, the 401k, all this other stuff, but there's still only one level that's dealing with the actual end client. Exactly. And by the way, we saw that with um, United Airlines. That One of the comments that's being made is that there's a big disconnect between the employees at the ground level that just have to get a plane and get people on a plane and get them out the door versus the corporate line versus the corporate uh, rules and policies and versus the history. And it doesn't seem like these organizations are communicating as effectively and, and are as free at the base level to do whatever needs to be done in a healthy way. You are, you are a million percent right. And, um, what just came up this morning, literally before we got on uh, this interview, was that a report just came out literally 10 minutes ago or 15 minutes ago that basically someone found out that this plane actually was not overbooked. Uh-oh. It was fully booked, not overbooked. And therefore, the contract uh, that I didn't even know they had these 50-page contracts that could allow the airline to do this to you, but they actually violated their own contract because the contract only uh, is applicable if the plane is overbooked. Overbooked, not fully booked. Not fully booked. So uh -oh. here's what they did. They took they, – uh-oh is right. So they took, they took a paying passenger who was seated in his seat, and they asked him to leave so they could put one of their own employees on the plane to get them to you know another flight they had to take coming out of Louisville. The, the reason this is very interesting, and you, you touched on this, um, is that it really relates to communication and empowerment. Um, the CEO has already made four successive statements regarding this incident, the first two of which were, you know, plausible deniability, for want of a better term, uh, or what I like to say is the dog ate my homework. And then when he realized the fallout of millions of of YouTube's going around the world and the stock price dropping 4%. Uh, yes. Uh, he now realizes this is the most He now said last night, this is the most despicable thing I've ever seen. I'm on it. We're never going to do this again, etc. The thing that, and we're never going to allow the police to come on our airplanes for something like this. But the thing that you said was really interesting, Matt, is those employees, the flight crew and the flight attendants, 
did not know what their what their rules and regulations were. I mean, someone could have said, hey, this guy said he has patients to see tomorrow. We can't ask him to get off the plane. That's what the man said before right. he was dragged off the plane. So who had the authority to do that? Obviously not the flight attendants. The pilots, I don't know where they were. You know, well, they were they probably were getting ready to fly a plane, right? They were getting ready to fly a plane, but their responsibility for the safety of their passengers. I fly a lot. Yeah. Now the latest thing they say when you take off is, it's our pleasure to welcome you back and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and our job is to make sure you get safely to your destination. Well, this man, this doctor, wasn't able to get safely off the plane because he was dragged and he banged his head and, you know, on, the, on, the, on the armrest. So you can see how things fall apart very quickly when an organization is not grounded in, in principles as opposed to rules. Yeah. And where their employees, where the leadership team is not engaged to anticipate that these situations could happen – and, and the instructions they give their people and the training on how to deal with unusual circumstances. So true. And I would love to have had you go in and interview that ground crew or the, the team, that, like the ticketing team, because like we were talking about earlier, Steve, maybe maybe there was already signs of stress, overwhelming. Mean, it was already a horrible weekend for Delta Airlines. It was it was a horrible probably travel weekend for a lot of people. Um but maybe those ang- the anger was there. The signs were already there. And like you're saying, the disconnect between what they do every day and their mission and their principles and the rules and, and the communication between it all. Stick with us, folks. We'll continue the discussion with Stephen D. Goldstein and, uh, and come back and talk about um, how, what we should learn from, the, from anger when we see it uh, in employees. There's some pretty important lessons that he's outlined in Inc.com magazine uh, article. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. We are currently talking to Stephen D. Goldstein. And if you go to the website, stephendgoldstein.com, you can find out more about him. Stephen uh, currently serves as president of Engaged Leadership Advisors and chairman of U.S. Auto Sales. He also uh, wrote the book, Why Are There Snowblowers in Miami? Transform Your Business Using the Five Principles of Engagement. And I've snuck a topic in on him. Um, I don't think he was expecting this, but uh, we have to talk about United Airlines. Um, because he's a he's a leadership consultant. He knows what he's doing. Uh, Stephen, again, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks, Matt. Great to be with you. This, um, but you're saying you, you've got to have the people on the ground level uh, that are meeting the customers that are on the front lines. They have a lot of information that the the upper management needs to know, and. And it, maybe it maybe some of the anger that we see from a lot of employees that we work with is is a sign that they're not able to they're not engaged and they're not fulfilling their their life's goals. They're not succeeding. Yes, and and that's exactly right. And and one of the reasons they uh, are angry, I found, is because their job can be very tedious and or very inefficient. 
and because they think they have a better way to do it, mm. but no one's interested in hearing what they have to say. And so, you know, it's like chopping the same pile of wood every day. You come out the next day, there's a big pile, you got to chop it up and you get tired. By the end of the day, you go home and rinse and repeat. It's the same thing every day. Um, there are other ways to do this. And again, I found that if you sit with these folks, even for an hour, and say, tell me the three things that are working and tell me the three things that are not working. And for the ones that are not working, what would you do to change them? And I would say 90% of the time, they have very good suggestions. And right. they don't understand why people, and it seems so obvious to them, and yet no one in management is doing this. And I think part of the reason is management is not aware of the nature of these issues. And if they actually went and met with these folks, let's take the airline example. If, if the CEO spent, who, who, who's in Chicago, if he spent uh, a few hours working at a gate in O'Hare and saw all what happens in the course of boarding a plane and all the interruptions and all the guys, I'm not even talking about in a snowstorm or something, just in normal times, um, it would be an eye-opening experience. Um, and then he could put teams on this to go figure out how to, you know, segregate all these issues and, you know, get people involved and solve problems and then implement them. And the great thing about doing that is the employees feel that, um, um, you know, their, their voice is heard. Right. And right. And so now the job becomes better. Now they become more engaged. And guess what? They lose their anger. Uh, large degree because work has a different purpose now. Uh, well, I see it working with couples and companies. Once you allow people to vent and communicate, it, it actually it eliminates the heat. It gets rid of all the negative energy because they've been able to give their ideas. We had it even here at BYU Broadcasting. We had an interim director while we were finding a new director, and the interim director came in and sat with every department and let everybody just talk and explain and express. And it, it actually, it did exactly what you said. It created, it actually got rid of any emotion that we were having or others were having. And it also got a bunch of ideas out that maybe hadn't been known. Exactly. And, you know, there's no magic to this. You really just have to roll up your sleeves. And the different, you know, so I ask leaders, why don't you do this? And they say, well, we're too busy. Well, that's, that's hmm. not a good answer. Right. Um, that means you don't think it's important enough to make time to do it. But part of it is they're uncomfortable doing this because um, you have to expose yourself, right? You have to be willing to hear things that are not positive and not take them personally, take them constructively. And you have to have a certain element of self-confidence as a leader to be able to take criticism, not necessarily of you, but of the business, about the way things are working, um, and, and give credibility to those comments so that people feel that it's okay to say something's wrong. Mm -hmm. There's something wrong in every situation, right? I mean, nothing is perfect. Right. Um, but a lot of people don't want to put themselves out there, I find. Well, don't you think it's funny now that this United thing has been exposed, but it's something that gate agents, I'm sure, have known for years. 
that this doesn't work well. And you can only heighten it so much until you have to bring cops on to get a guy off an airplane. And they probably for years have known this problem, but maybe could not push it up. Now now it's been pushed up. And by the way, to a a cost of about a 255 drop in the market cap, right? So, I mean, it's, it costs their company a lot of money. Right. So if they had handled this better, or even, I'm making this up, but if they had given this guy $10,000 to get off the plane, oh, right? Yeah. Um, you know, you know what, you wouldn't, I, we wouldn't be talking about this now. Nope. So that, that nonsense about an $800, you know, uh, coupon, you know, causes a quarter of a billion dollar, you know, decrease in market cap. I mean, it just, the, the risks and rewards are disproportionate. Right. Well, and and again, just the PR and – but the oh. funny thing too is we, even just paying for the problem still doesn't in the end solve it. They they need yeah. they need to be able to talk. Another point you bring up in your article, uh, three things you can learn from your angriest employees, is the fact that they're angry because their goals are unclear. It's an unclear or unreasonable – untenable type of goal. Like we hear this about people who's, who, you know, their numbers that they're supposed to hit for sales have just doubled, even though nothing else has doubled. Right. And, and, you know, and, and, and generally the goals, that's, that's exactly right. Generally the goals, again, are very financial. So um, my guess is the airport agents, going back to this example, they probably have metrics of how quickly can you board the plane? How many, how often does the plane leave on time or doesn't leave on time as a result of you not boarding the plane properly? You know, so it's, it's rush, 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 rush. I doubt there's questions about, um, did everyone who needs a wheelchair get a wheelchair? Did, did people on, you know, crutches all hundred percent of them get on before hmm. the, the masses get on. Yeah. Um, did, did the families get boarded? Yeah. Off? Right. I mean, you know, did they did they ask people as they were getting off the plane one question? Would you fly us again? Yeah. That's right? so true. And, and 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 if you got marked on that, that's very different than where you were on time. So, but no, they don't want to do that. You know, they don't do that. So too soft. Um, too soft. Too soft. <laughs> but but. Yeah. But not soft. I mean, it's no. soft until it hits you in your in your bottom line. Yeah, until somebody's YouTubing right. how you're handling everybody. Uh, another right. point you bring up is that there's also probably a lack of adequate incentives. I think a lot of times, and, and I mean, it made sense, you know, when the economy was bad and it was hard to get a job, you just ought to be grateful you have a job. But, you know, we should also have other incentives for people to work. Yeah, you know, and and when people say when you know when when the when people invoke the word incentives, I would say ninety nine point nine percent of them think about money. So let me give you a good example that just happened recently. Yeah. Um, at this company, U.S. Auto, where I'm chairman, they we have a great CEO, and they really understand engagement, and they're doing all the right things. And for Veterans Day they sent out an email to all employees uh, that basically said, if you, if you were, if you were a veteran, please let us know. Um, And so I think there were like 12 people who were veterans and they organized uh, in the, in the company cafeteria, a little ceremony. They had them come in. 
Um, there was a cake, and they thanked them for their service and everything. And one of the guys um, walked into the CEO, CEO's office and said, that was the nicest thing anyone's ever done for me. Cool. Yeah. And, and, and you say to yourself, well, is that guy now incented? Mm-hmm. I would say, you bet. And, and really low budget, money. really. I mean, that didn't cost a lot. No, but it's, but you know, so, and, but it, conversely, if you had given this guy another $500 for being a veteran, he would have said thank you, but it would not have had the same right. impact. Yeah. So, so I think incentives are really important. I think financial incentives are important, but oftentimes they're, they're, they're um, based on productivity measures, um, which may affect quality or the customer experience. So, one of the things that I've been trying to, uh, uh, um, a market or push is incentives that really relate to customer satisfaction, mm. which then the question is, how do you measure customer satisfaction? And the answer typically is we don't. So then we have to figure out like, how would we do, how would we start measuring customer satisfaction? And when, when, when companies start doing that, it is amazing how engaged their employees get. And, and by the way, coming back full circle, when that happens, they're no longer angry because they're actually doing what they were hired to do, which is to serve the customer. Right. Yeah. They're, and that's what they do want to do. They the, don't want to be angry. Yeah, because they get to serve now. They get it. They get to be human instead yeah. instead of a machine. Instead of a machine, exactly. Yeah. No, I I think that's. It's beautiful. Well, I think you're on to something, Stephen. Somehow we got to get you into uh, United Air- Airlines and have you start consulting there. Um, and it really, it's, it, United is just really an example of, I think, so many other companies that get caught up. And, and we do. It's, a, it's, it's probably inherent in the fact that we have such large organizations. It's maybe hard to, to get the water down to the end of the row, right? Down to the end of the line. Well, we appreciate uh, Stephen D. Goldstein. Again, go to his website, stephendgoldstein.com, and uh, you can find out more of his work there and his book, Why Are There Snowblowers in Miami? Transform Your Business Using the Five Principles of Engagement. We'll take a break, my friends. When we come back, we'll be talking about the origins of Easter with Caitlin Thomas. Stick with us. A little walking music with Caitlin Thomas. Uh, today we're talking with Caitlin about the Easter Bunny and uh, the origins of the Easter Bunny. I get I get Easter. It's a very spiritual thing for me. And yet, I don't get where the bunny comes from and the eggs. Caitlin Thomas, enlighten us. We are here to talk about Easter this week. Okay, so, because bunnies don't lay eggs. Bunnies don't lay eggs. You know, here's the thing. Every year Easter comes around, and I'm I'm still confused as to how we decide when Easter is. Oh, the board. The right? Easter board. But I found out the reason for the variation in the day of Easter is because Easter always falls on the first Sunday after the first follow, full moon following the spring equinox. Okay. Right. So okay. in 2018, next year Easter will be celebrated on April 1st, and in 2019 it'll be on April 21st. Boy. So there that is. I, I mean, did not I don't know it was that complicated. That. I'm not sure yeah. who determines that, but I'm glad somebody makes calendars yeah. and I don't have to do it. So there is that. Um, anyways, 
Why the eggs and the bunny? Good question. I can, I, I'm here to tell you. Are you? There's an answer? There I mean, is. We talked yesterday I mean, about how, how you're supposed like... to eat a chocolate bunny. Um, right. And then we got into this weird discussion about why do we have bunnies anyway? I mean, I think it's, of course, there's a lot of, like, you can... Because it's hard. We, we didn't live in the past, and I'm not even sure if anybody really wrote it down. No. Some traditions just kind of come about. But eggs. Eggs go back to, like, medieval times because I guess eggs are a representation of new life. Yeah, sure. Which is what we're celebrating with Easter, right? It's the resurrection of Christ. If you're a Christian, that's what you're looking at. And and it's a time, springtime, and it's new life and, and yada, yada, yada. So that's eggs. So eggs is about birth and new life. Yeah, so birth and new life. So in medieval times, people have been decorating eggs forever. I guess it used to be a really big part of celebrating this for oh, Christians. Yeah. Very elaborately, they would decorate these eggs and like have contests and whatnot. Um, but then the bunny. So here's what happened. So Puritans came to America and they didn't like that Easter and Christmas were so rowdy. Like they felt like it was just a time for people to get, you know, really to party drunk and to get celebrate. their party on. So eventually it shifted where they started to try and make it more kid friendly. And at the same time, childhood was now something to be celebrated rather than looked at just as a step towards adulthood. So it was a time shift where now all of a sudden culturally we were celebrating and allowing children to be children. Oh, okay. And so these these holidays became more geared towards children because we were celebrating instead of just another another rowdy holiday. Yeah. Right. Um, So it was this recognition of childhood. And so that's where the eggs came in. And then like – in the 17th century, their German tradition of an Easter hare came around, bringing these eggs to the people. Now, I'm not sure where that started. There's just some guy that's like, hey, let's put a hare in the mix. Let's put a hare in the mix. Kids like hares. Yeah. Right? They're nothing cuddly. So he, it was kind of like Christmas where, you know, Santa Claus would bring gifts to good yeah. kids. So the Easter hare would bring eggs to Oh, good they needed kids. something to bring the eggs. Another way to bribe children to be good. Right. And you got the eggs yeah. from the Easter hare. You didn't hare. want like a python bringing the eggs. Right. That's a little scary. But all kids love. It was a kid-friendly thing. Oh, that's thing. cute. So hares and rabbits had a long association with spring rituals, right? Okay. Because bunnies in spring. Well, that's when you hunt a bunny is in spring. And yeah. So now they had – they brought in something that was already with spring and then they mixed it in with the eggs. And okay. Then if we oh, – Caitlin, I wish we had more time because then you could help us understand where that peep came from, those little marshmallowy peeps. You know what? Those are the worst. I can't eat them. But happy Easter. There you go. Some background on Easter. And let's not make it rowdy. Let's get back to the real reason for the season. Right. The the family, the new life. Yeah. And if you're a Christian, you know the resurrection of Christ. Her name's Caitlin Thomas. There you have it, folks. Thank you, Caitlin. Mm -hmm. We'll take a break. Come back. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1 855 Chat BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. This is the program where we give you the latest, greatest research to give you a leg up in life. You know, most of us weren't uh, born with an owner's manual, so we have to figure out how this all works. How our relationships work, how our how to do better in our workplace, our jobs, how to deal with the difficult people in life. That is the goal of this show. 
and we do it every day, 9 to noon Eastern. You can also find out more about the show on iTunes, on TuneIn, on Stitcher. We've got, we're everywhere, byuradio.org. On iTunes, give us a rating. Give us five stars. Give us five stars on iTunes. Give us a review. Give us a little review. That'll help people find the, the podcast. It's amazing. As I go out and speak, I have I have all these people come up and they say, I love your show. Hmm. You don't get a five-star rating unless you put mints on pillows, though. Oh, well, we're not allowed to go to their pillow. Hmm. No, that's too far. Remember, we talked about that, we have, Jeff. We have boundaries. Do you remember when he showed up putting that thing on your pillow? Yeah. HR called for a yeah. follow-up call yesterday to make sure yeah. everything's okay. I said, yeah, I think we're good. I think he's learned his lesson. Luckily, maybe... you had those cameras that yeah. got him. Well. Nobody appreciates me. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's hard to be Jeffrey. Um, we got a great show for you today. We'll be talking about the tendency that humans have to do things on autopilot. Like, we drive a 4,000-pound vehicle yes. at 70 miles an hour, and we don't even remember driving. There's many days I cannot remember Getting off on the freeway exit to come here to the building. That's scary. I drove off. Like, did, how did By I get the way, off that, the freeway? By the way, that is the worst part of your drive is that crazy, you know, racetrack that yeah. gets you up to the studio. I always kind of feel like I'm on a Hot Wheels track. Yeah. You're just racing around a corner. People, yeah. yeah. It's not good. It's especially nuts. that early. So we've got to get off autopilot, but a lot of our, our actions, our fighting, our our silly little arguments – and just our unhappiness is caused because we're on an autopilot mode, mm. and we might need to learn how to turn that off. So we'll be getting into that uh, psychology with a, um, a – uh, So you're for autopilot in your car, against it in life. Absolutely. Okay. Just Honestly, that's that. the thing is we should, we should use it in cars so that we could stay present mm. in our head. But not when we're driving the 4,000-pound – No. Okay. That's, that'll kill you. Gotcha. So we'll get to that fun. Also, uh, visit our good brethren at BYU Sports Nation. Find out what's coming up on their show at the top of the hour. Plus, of course, a hero story and a lot of empty news. More empty news, including some college guys thought it would be really funny if, um, if they put a, an alligator, a dead alligator, I guess, in their dorm rooms. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, what's the worst thing that can happen? That sounds like good, honest college fun. No, seriously. <laughs> Whoa. Seriously, Jerry, just pick up the tail and we'll carry it up to the girls' dorms. It will be so funny. Well, we'll, we'll find out what happened. Sometimes, you know, a good joke gone awry. But first, let's get to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what is going on around the rest of the country? Office of Management and Budget Director Mick Mulvaney declare, uh, clarified in an interview aired Wednesday that President Trump didn't actually mean it when he promised during his presidential campaign to eliminate the national debt. What? He didn't mean it? No, he said it's fairly safe to assume that hi- that was hyperbole, Mulvaney told CNBC. I'm not going to be able to pay off $20 trillion worth of debt in four years. It would be dis... He was, I'd be being dishonest with you if I said that I could. So what was Trump doing? Well, I think Trump was just embellishing. Mm. He was experiencing and and using hyperbole. Budget experts, of course, knew Trump's claim was an impossibility from the get-go, though that didn't stop Trump from repeating the promise of eliminating the nation's $20 trillion debt by the end of his second term. Trump has since walked back the claim in later interviews with uh, Fortune magazine that he would just pay off a percentage of it in 10 years. Hmm. White House Counselor Kellyanne Conway unintentionally had the crowd cracking up during her interview Wednesday at the Museum in Washington, D.C. Have you ever been to the Museum? The, no. I could have gone to the museum. I went to the spy museum instead. That sounds more exciting. 
Yeah, that's what I thought. I think the museum might be better. Really? I don't know. It's kind of, you know, the history of newspapers and yeah. news coverage seems boring. But yeah. So she's at the museum doing an interview. Conway aired her grievances Wednesday about the dishonesty she claims runs rampant in the media. You can turn on the TV more than you can read in the paper because I assume editors are still doing their jobs in most places. And people literally say things that just aren't true. They're not even disguised as opinion. Yeah. They're not even disguised as opinion. This from the Hmm. woman who coined the term alternative facts. Alternative facts. And many are surprised she's still even around because we don't hear from her as much. Yeah, she's faded into the background. A lot of people said it's a lot calmer at the White House when she's not speaking to TV (laughs) stations. So we'll see how that continues. Another moment from the interview that earned a chuckle from the crowd was when Conway was asked about the Washington Post's new tagline, Democracy Dies in Darkness. That's their tagline on their underneath their masthead on the front page, right? That's great. Says, line. "I'm going to tell you." This is the interview. I'm going to tell you when they say democracy dies in darkness, you're the darkness. As people started wow. laughing, and she said, "I'm not the darkness." Interesting. <laughs> so it's like oh, now a battle over darkness. Who's darkness? The White House strived for uh, neither quality nor quantity in its recently re- released readout of President Trump's call with Chinese President Xi Jinping. More than 12 hours after the phone call Tuesday night, which Trump tweeted about uh, saying the menace of North Korea was what they talked about, the White House sent out a two-sentence recap of the conversation. Only two of the 28 words attempted to describe the call in any detail. Those words were very and productive. Wow, two words. Two words. Very productive. In contrast, the Chinese released a 10-paragraph recap of the phone call. Wow. So you have this this government that we that's always been characterized as being closed yeah, and darkness. You know, darkness essentially. And they're very open on this phone call where the the Trump administration gives you two words that describe very the phone productive. call. Uh, if you remember Trump was eating dinner in Florida with the Chinese president when he approved the Syrian missile strike. Apparently, yeah. they were eating dessert. I was sitting at the table, we had finished dinner, we're now having dessert. And we had the most beautiful piece of chocolate cake that you've ever seen. And (laughs) President Xi was enjoying it. And I was given the message from the generals that the ships are locked and loaded. What do you do? And we made a determination to do it. So the missiles were on the way. So you could see his mouth full of chocolate cake going, yeah, go ahead. He gave a thumbs up with chocolate on his thumb. Go for it. Wow. This yeah. is, it's almost like this is the makings of a movie. Could be. Could be. Um, how do you feel about cooking your dinner in your washing machine? Um, I'm not big on that. Okay. There's, an, uh, there's a project that's coming out. It's, so the article here says a sprinkle of washing powder, a dash of fabric conditioner. This is from Europe, so they have some weird terms here. And a good slug of teriyaki sauce. You know, your food. It says, next time you load your washing machine, you might be adding some extra ingredients. If Israeli design student, and then a name I'm not going to pronounce, I, his idea catches on. In response to our increasing energy-conscious, time-poor existence, he has come up with a plan to boil in the bag meals that you can throw into the laundry. and uh, they, So your meal comes out steamed. No. But it might be pummeled and spun, too. But you can steam your vegetables, maybe cook some some meat products mm. of some kind in a bag. No. I'm game no? as long as I can wash the dishes at the same time. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. That's a great point. His project imagines a range of prepackaged foods from steak with garlic and herbs to salmon and no. teriyaki sauce. 
They have some waterproof bags complete with washing temperatures and uh, nutritional information displayed on the, si- on the side of the bag. Um, just the idea, you toss your food in, cooks it while you do your wash. When you switch to the dryer, dinner's done. We talked earlier about the edible bottle that yeah. holds a little water ball that you just eat the whole ball of water inst- instead of having a bottle. Why don't we just have edible clothes? So after the day, well, you just eat Oh, them. this is a clothes washer. I thought it was a dishwasher. No, it's clothes. Like, you're doing so the laundry. So my dish comment probably made no sense. But well, people it, expect that from you. It's fine. Well, I was thinking plastic plates. Yeah. Um, but you, what if you could do your dishes, your laundry, and make no. dinner at the same time? I need to save the time. I think, honestly, we just need to make time no, to no, make no. a dinner so that you eat it effectively. Dinner is the most important meal as a family. It's, it's what... Families that eat together, their children are less likely to get into truant and deviant behavior. So we don't want this dinner being had around the washing machine. Well, you could cook it there and take it upstairs to the to the kitchen if that's where everything's located. Well, because I mean, just... you automatically have people yelling over the sound of the, the washer. So you don't want people but yelling at each other. For the first time, this makes sense. In Europe, washing machines yeah. are in the kitchen. And they're also tiny. Yeah, so you could. This would make sense. This makes sense in Europe. Over there, over totally here, doesn't. we kind of right. separate the food and the lint making machine. Well, yeah, we usually are washing something because it's dirty, and we usually don't like to throw our food in a dirty hole where it will be tossed around. <laughs> but what if you've <laughs> what if what if you've cultivated your own vegetables mm-hmm. and fruits? They need to be cleaned. That's right. They're all. Do you want them cleaned with your jeans? Well, that all gets washed out in the end. Does it? It does. Really? That's what the instruction manual says. Yeah. I just, I'm not. So that's not a good deal? I'm not good deal. That. All right, well. I just think that's weird. No, it's an idea. It's a really good idea yeah. for the people in Europe. Let's let them try it. I've always thought that uh, you, my wife watches House Hunters. I say that because I'm sitting next to her, but I'm not really watching. You're not watching it. She's but watching But all these it. people are looking in, you know, like Italy, and yeah. they're looking for an apartment. There's the washing machine Tiny next to little, the sink. You're like, what yeah. are you doing? No, it's weird. Why is this here? Yeah. I, we, we See, again, that's just us going on autopilot. We need to fix that. Mm. Our guest today will help us with that. By the way, I, I don't know if I remember. We're, we're celebrating Thomas Jefferson Day. This, the third president of the United States is 274 years today. He's made it. I mean, his. Well, he would have. Yeah. He rest in peace. He didn't make it. Uh, let me give you some facts you may not know about Mr. Jefferson. Ooh. Interesting little facts. Third president of the United States. I knew that. He's After his retirement, he sold his library. Guess how many books he had in his library? 1,200. <laughs> no, 6,500 volumes. <gasps> he sold them to the Library of Congress after. Can it- I call the books that I own volumes? No. No? They're just books? Well, yours are probably not even volumes. Yeah, they're not even... They, you'd probably have to have a meaty book. They're more issues. To, yeah. That'd be the correct Yours term are, yeah. Yours, issues. Yeah. Tomes? Magazines? Hmm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Jefferson needed the cash to pay off his debts, so he started selling his books off. Huh. He said, I cannot live without books, is what he told John Adams. Did he sign them first? I don't know. Because you'd probably get a little more money for him that way. Do you think Absolutely. they called it his John Hancock at that point, or did that term no, come that in later? No, that probably came in later. Okay, just... He probably didn't like John Hancock. Yeah, probably. Maybe they weren't buddies. Who knows? Jefferson, the architect, he designed the rotunda for the University of Virginia. Mm. He's a designer. He's an architect. His, and he also his own home at Monticello, he mm-hmm. designed, and the Virginia State Capitol. Or is it Monticello? Richmond. It's Monticello. Okay, sir. Rotunda, I think I owned one of those cars one time. 
a didn't, rotunda. Didn't drive. Yeah. Didn't drive. Was it a well. Hyundai? The I, Hyundai Rotunda. Yeah. Yeah. Those are the old days. Uh, Monticello has um, was is what he called his hobby of my old age, which is a really important thing because maybe we all need to find a hobby for our our old age. Hmm. I mean, do you find that hobby before you're old? Yeah, okay. probably ought to. He's a food lover. On his return from France, Jefferson brought his love of the nation's cuisine back with him. That's where we got French fries, probably. Yeah, absolutely. French yeah. toast. Yeah. Quiche. Mm. James Hemings went to France as his slave, and the pair agreed that if Hemings learned how to make French cuisine, he would be freed on his return to America. To That's a lot what? of pressure. He'll be freed from being food? a slave if you, if you can make French cuisine. I will free you. Imagine the pressure that the top chefs feel on those Iron Chef commercials or TV shows. Nothing compared to that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. It almost, that seems a little cold. A little bit. Anywho, uh, he was an agriculturalist. Agriculturalist. Does that mean he farmed? He he done farmed a lot. Okay. uh, Because um, he thought it would make our nation independent of other nations if we could maintain our own food supply. Too bad he didn't fix that oil problem we have. Yeah. He, yeah, he wasn't a geologist yeah. or a geophysicist. Come on. Uh, Jefferson, the astronomer, loved stargazing almost as much as he liked books. He huh. made sure astronomy was taught at the University of Virginia. We couldn't have loved books that much. Well, he needed the money mm. to pay for his So French he loves cuisine. money. Mm-hmm. He was a writer, of course, right? He wrote the well, Declaration I mean, of Independence. Wasn't everyone a writer at that point? <laughs> I mean, that's the only way you could communicate way, is through horrible, the mail, Very right? true. He was a horrible texter. Oh, yeah, yeah. That guy, Absolutely. nothing but thumbs. <laughs> and he was a musician. He took violin lessons as a child and played the violin as he courted his future wife, Martha Skelton. Huh. Nothing so, says I love you more than a so, little violin or, in Jeff's case, a mariachi band. High school, I played the trombone. Do you think I should have used that to court my wife? Well, the spit valve isn't, uh, it's a turnoff. Hold this open a second. Once you have to empty out a spit valve, (laughs) you know your wife loves you. You know she's dating you for you. Yeah. Not for your music. That's real love right there, yeah. Isn't that cool? So, um, Thomas Jefferson, happy 274th birthday today. Love to be there at that dinner when, you know, his slave presents him with the meal and he's like, "Mm, this quiche needs a few more minutes. Not even close. (laughs) Back to the kitchen with you. Wow. Oh, that's crazy. Well, history. You know, you can't run from it. You just got to accept it. We'll take a break. When we come back, we are going to be talking about uh, how to uh, lose the autopilot that we all live on and, you know, maybe take our lives back. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. How many things do you do during the day out of habit or repetition? You'd be surprised to know how many daily activities you're actually doing purely on autopilot, yet how many times do you get angry or take offense because you think others have wronged you purposefully? Is it possible that they didn't intentionally, you know, pull into your lane? Maybe they were just on autopilot. Today we are uh, have a returning guest, uh, Georgia Gwinnett College's professor of psychology, David Ludden, joins us to discuss his article about how our minds tend to go on autopilot and how we can improve our relationships with others by blaming their faults on autopilot. David, thank you so much for being again with us here. 
No, thank you for inviting me. This is, um, I, I see it a lot in my own life where you just kind of automatically do these habitual things. Talk about the human autopilot. What is it? How does it work? Well, I think most of the things that we do in our daily life um, that, that we can do on a kind of a regular basis, we build a routine for it. I mean, think about brushing your teeth. Um, I don't even know if I remember brushing my teeth this morning, but I'm sure that I did. Uh, <laughs> you hope you did, huh, David? I hope I did. Oh, I'm pretty sure I did, uh, but but I don't really remember doing it, and I don't think I had much conscious consciousness going on as I was going through that routine. And And why should I be thinking consciously about you know, which tooth to brush at this point, because I got other things I can be thinking about and other things that I can be doing. Is it, is it, how did this come to be? I mean, I guess in a way it makes it better so we can occupy our mind with better thoughts or other thoughts, supposedly. Well, yeah, I I think it's actually kind of the other way around. I think most of life, and I think, you know, animals in general, for the most part, are operating on autopilot. And we see that kind of this full level of consciousness is the only kind of, comes up sometimes, sometimes in other animals as well, uh, probably more so in humans. But it, it, it's sort of a con- it's sort of like full consciousness is something that kind of comes into play when we really need to put all of our res- kind of mental resources into kind of solving a problem or something something unexpected has come up. You're learning a task for the new time. You really have to concentrate on it. But once you learn how to do something, you don't really have to think about it too deeply anymore. And it becomes, I guess... Um, it's, it's probably a life-saving thing. So if I, if all of a sudden a car pulls into my lane, my brain will automatically kick in, right? And start operating at this higher level. And does it actually take me off autopilot? And and am I now doing it myself or is it my brain on autopilot in those tense moments? No, no, it's, it's, it's shifting out of autopilot into kind of a full, a full consciousness so that you can actually pay attention to what you're doing and think carefully about what's going on. It, like like in a, a close, uh, almost traffic accident or something like that, it's amazing how many things we notice in that split second and how many decisions that we're making during that time and that we're actually aware of. It, it, it's, it's there to help us. Uh, it's, it's there to help us problem solve. When there, when there are problems that we know how to solve already, we don't really need to think about it. We just do it the same old way we always do. Hmm. But when a novel problem comes up, then we need to think about it and kind of come up with the best solution. And and you're you're suggesting that um, – so this is really about our level of consciousness because so much of our day-to-day activity is happening without us actually thinking, okay, now – pick up the pencil, lift the pencil, move it, make the mark. So much of that's happening at a, a subconscious level. Um, right. now, so, but I'm assuming that this can be dangerous to us, maybe not dangerous physically or all the time, but dangerous to us emotionally, socially. Uh, well, I, I suppose it can be in the sense that we, we get into habits. Um, I, I guess maybe where you're going with is sort of like when – when couples learn how to push each other's buttons. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's where you need to get... Uh, kind of a, a buzzword nowadays is mindfulness. And really, the idea of mindfulness is being really fully present, fully conscious in the moment of what it is that you're doing. And and that's one of the ways that, that you can kind of get out of that routine of pushing your... your your, your partner's buttons uh, during an argument is by being mindful of what it is you're doing during that time. Is, and then think of new ways of behaving. Is it, is it helpful to be 
in a relationship um, where you're on autopilot through a lot of it? Or is what makes the relationship special? Is it when we're on autopilot and let's say our autopilots really work well together, but we're, we're not consciously aware of what we're doing necessarily? Or is it better to have those moments of tension where we take off autopilot and we have to fly by hand? Well, I think it, I think it's both, but I think what it came to, comes down to is if we had to be fully conscious in every moment of everything we uh, we did, it would just be exhausting. Oh, we yeah. really couldn't, couldn't get anything done. Uh, uh, all the day-to-day things that we do, kind of running on autopilot is probably the best thing. You don't have to think about it. We just do it. And I think part of settling into a relationship is building those routines so you don't really have to think deeply, but you kind of get used to your partner's ways of doing things and and accommodating your behaviors to that. And that, so that could be good. And I guess there, even like when we think of autopilot in an airplane, autopilot is something that the pilot would intentionally maybe turn on, um, but mm-hmm. they're still consciously engaged and, and interacting. And there might be times they might turn it off and then fly by hand and then turn it back on. Is that how you see we should be running our autopilot? And I mean, more consciously, Letting it go when we need to just let it go, but also consciously stopping it and, and taking over our life at times. Yeah, I, I think that's, a, that's a, a good way of thinking about it. I suppose on a plane, when, when the computer or the autopilot knows that there's a problem, it will alert the pilot. And I, I sort of see that as being what's going on in the example we've talked about, like, like when you're almost in a traffic accident and you suddenly shift from autopilot to being consciously aware. That's sort of like the real pilot taking over. Um, yeah, but uh, I, it, it's always a good idea to be more aware that you are going through through the routine, so at least be aware that you know that you're doing things out of routine and that if something isn't working right, if you're not getting the results that, that you want, then maybe start stopping to think about those routines that you're going through and, and thinking about ways that you might better change. Yeah, I love that. It's um, Talk to us about uh, Morgan's Canon. Oh, that, yeah. That's well, a, Morgan... It's a really interesting concept. Yeah, well, this goes way back to the uh, late 19th, early 20th century, uh, where there are lots of cases of uh, supposedly very intelligent animals. In my article, I tell the story of Clever Hans, the uh, the horse that could do math. Right. And uh, right, very complicated uh, math as well. It happened that his owner was a math teacher, so that, so Hans was pretty good at mathematics. Um, in the end, it turned out that what Hans was doing, well, the, the way that Hans. Uh, Gave his answer was by clapping his his, his hoof. So how, however many times he he beat his hoof, that was the answer to the question. And it turns out that what Hans was really doing was reading his owner's facial expressions for when to start tapping his hoof and when to stop. So I mean, he was, he was clever in the sense that that he he could read the his his uh, owner's facial expressions, but he really wasn't doing math. And so uh, Morgan suggested that. Uh, the way that we deal with these cases is we assume that the behavior is operating at a lower level of consciousness unless we can find definitive evidence that it's happening at a higher level. And so we don't, we don't assume that the, math, that the horse can do math at the beginning. We assume that there must be something else going on. And if we can find that lower level, such a sort of, uh, kind of intuitive reading of facial expressions, um, if, we can, if we can see that's what's going on, then we just stop right there. We assume that that's the explanation for it. And, and you're I, suggesting I, we yeah. use that in our day-to-day lives when somebody crosses us, when somebody does something, you know, rude or offensive, 
we should assume they're doing it out of a lower level of consciousness instead of a higher level. Right. I mean, it's not usually used in that way, but sort of over the years as I've taught Morgan's Canon, it's kind of gradually come uh, up to consciousness. But wait a minute, this might apply to humans as well, because when I realize that I do things out of routine, um, then, I, then, then, then I should be able to realize that or, or should be able to consider that other people are just operating on autopilot as well. Yeah, because that, yeah. that I'd be less offended thinking that, you know, they just weren't right. thinking instead of assuming yeah. that they're trying to slowly destroy me. Well, exactly. And and then even if you have to confront somebody, somebody cuts you in line, for example, if you think they did it intentionally, you're going to, and you confront them about it, you're going to speak with anger in your voice and they're going to get defensive. Mm. And so you're really not going to resolve the situation. But if you just assume that they were mistaken and kindly, you know, kindly point out that, you know, the, the line starts way back there. Um, you haven't, you know, raised their defenses, and so they're going to be more likely to to uh, accept what you have to say. I think the same is true when you're when you're dealing with your other social relations with your spouse or, or family members. If you just assume that the thing they did to to hurt you wasn't done intentionally, um, I think it's going to be easier to, in most cases, it's going to be easier to you know, work out the, the situation than if you start off with uh, with an angry attitude. It's a great it's a great rule. And um because think about how many times our kids annoy us or frustrate us and we might already be reacting to them as if it's intentional and they're just uh-huh. being they're just being hurtful or problematic or whatever, but in reality they just aren't aware of what's happening. And like you're saying it changes the tone. Then when I actually turn to the guy that's budding in line, I can just say I'll say it with a different tone because I'm not as offended. Right, exactly. Uh-huh. That's powerful. Let's uh, let's do this. Let's take a break, David, and come back and continue the the discussion about blaming it on the autopilot. It really might be a, a very helpful paradigm for all of us to adopt. Uh, Doctor David Ludden joins us. We'll continue the discussion. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends. Uh, Joining us is Dr. David Ludden, a professor of psychology at Georgia Gwinnett College. He's also author of the book, The Psychology of Language. And uh, you can go find out more about him by visiting his blog, Talking Apes, on psychologytoday.com, which is where we found this article, Blame It on Autopilot. Again, we appreciate you being with us, David. Thank you for your time. Thank you. So um, as you talk about autopilot, humans, we there's and, and thank heavens, we don't have to consciously do everything um, in our lives. We don't have to even consciously think through all of the steps uh, of brushing our teeth or getting dressed or driving to work. We literally right. would probably go crazy. Um, but so we call that autopilot. We have this ability to go on autopilot and it's a great thing. Um, where does it harm us and where, where do you see it, you know, being a point that we need to kind of be more conscientious about our consciousness? Well, sure. I I mean, if if you just kind of go through your whole life on autopilot and never really pay any attention to what it is you're doing, never, never engage in any sort of mindfulness, um, you end up 
I think, creating a lot of social harm in, in your life. I think we all know people who don't seem to have any awareness at all of of how they uh, irritate other people or the effect that they have on other people. And so you certainly need to have a certain level of awareness. I, I think one way we can think about this is consciousness is sort of like a uh, like a dimmer switch on a light. You can turn it up higher or turn it down lower. And so when you're driving through, you know, light traffic or something like that, you got to turn down really low. When you're going through your ordinary everyday life, it's turned down low. But then there are certain situations where you got to turn it up more, you know. And I think a lot of times social situations, you really need to be paying attention to the effect that you're you're having on other people. Yeah. Are there signs? I mean, I guess if I'm seeing negative emotion, if I'm seeing somebody that's angry, I call those vital signs. If I see signs that they're angry, it should be a sign that I turn up my autopilot a little bit. I mean, I turn up my consciousness a little bit. Yeah, exactly. And, and some people um, are kind of intuitively good at doing it doing this, and some people are uh, just sort of miss, um, miss out on those sorts of facial cues, those sort of subtle facial cues. And, and I think for a lot of people, if they actually pay attention, they'll notice them, but they're sort of, they've got their attention focused elsewhere. I think in my article, I give the example where I'm driving and I run a red light because I just didn't notice because I was so busy talking to my wife, right? So I was so engaged in something else, I really didn't have enough attention engaged on what was really the important task. Right. And I guess that's the, that's one of the keys to intelligence is being able to turn up the dimmer switch or turn down the dimmer switch and and or turn up the consciousness. Really, that's what exactly. separates us. Yeah. Well, that's that's exactly it. That's, that's what conscious behavior, or I should say, intelligent behavior, really in humans is all about: is knowing when you need to really focus your attention, your consciousness on what you're doing, and when you can just sort of slide into autopilot. Do you, do you, um, are, are there, another benefit of this you're saying, though, is I, I need to evaluate my own consciousness and, and my own presence and attention in certain moments, but I can also use my, my ability to interpret events by, mm-hmm. by kind of, by very quickly just saying, obviously, I guess using Morgan's canon, um, mm-hmm. this isn't this person isn't at a higher level of consciousness being rude to me. They probably don't know what they're doing. So, so that actually helps me manage interpretations of others as well. Well, well, it does, um, and, and we and we find that the people. It's interesting. You you give people situations, uh, and they'll 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 just assume that the other person did what they did intentionally. Right, so like, like if somebody pulls out in front of you in traffic, you, your automatic assumption is they is that they they did it intentionally. They saw you and they were just trying to get in really quick in front of you without without thinking that well maybe they they didn't notice you or something like that. But when we when we do something like that, and I think we've had this situation. We've pulled into traffic, and once we realize, and as we're pulling into traffic, we realize we're cutting somebody off. And you know we don't say oh you know I was intentionally doing that. I like oh my gosh I didn't notice. Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah, it's it's that it's that realizing that that since you don't always uh, you don't always pay attention to what you're doing, you don't you're not always aware of what you're doing. You should uh, give the other other person the same benefit of the doubt that you give yourself. It's it, it we do we. Um... There's a great quote that I think is talking about what you're saying by Napoleon Bonaparte. I think that said, "Never attribute to malice that which is adequately excused by incompetence." Oh, absolutely, yeah. 
And yeah. it, it's isn't that powerful? Yeah. So it's but I guess Very that much. that again is the assumption that we have the dimmer switch. We can turn this up because we, we make an automatic interpretation, and that's just kind well, of that, our nature. But you're saying there's a point you got to make intentional interpretations. Right. Exactly. And the automatic interpret. Ironically, the automatic interpretation is is that they did it intentionally. Yeah. And so our intentional interpretation has to be that they didn't do it intentionally. Hmm. Yeah. And, and humans can do that. I mean, really, and, and it actually, because whatever interpretation we make will also determine all of our feelings and emotions after the fact and what we do. Mm-hmm. Right? Because if, if I feel like you're trying to hurt me, game on. Then everything else is justified after that. Exactly. Exactly. Powerful. And, and, and in the end, you're the one who actually escalated the situation, not the other person. And you may have done it subconsciously. Well, exactly. Yeah, without any any intention. Uh, neither side realizing that what what they're doing is actually making the situation worse instead of better. Powerful. That I I really think is that's that's it, right? That's that is this seems to be this this autopilot management seems to be the crux of making it through life healthy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Not just alive, yeah. right? Because the autopilot will maybe keep us alive, but it may not right. keep us loved. <laughs> well, that's for sure. That's yeah, right. yeah, and it can create a lot more problems that we can we can resolve if we uh, pay attention at the right times. Yeah, good stuff. Well, David, we appreciate you and your great work. Keep it up there um, at uh, Georgia Gwinnett College. Also, keep it up on uh, Psychology Today. One of my favorite uh, sites and sources for our guests, as well as just great insight into human nature. Dr. David Ludden's his name. We'll take a break, come back, visit our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation, find out what's coming up on their show today. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. I walk through the streets and I realize that. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. A little light jazz for you as we go down to visit our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation. Spencer and Jerem today. Hello, gentlemen. Sports. You ever wonder if anybody just happens to tune into BYU Radio, like right when those random promos are playing and yeah. wonder, what in the world What's going on? is happening? What do you I mean? think what, that happens during our show a lot. What do you mean random promos? You think um, those are random? I can't think of a better word for him, Matt. Speaking of random, <laughs> great segue. <laughs> I've got a I've got a story I need to talk tell you, and then I want you guys to give us your best um, trick you ever played in college. Okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, three Florida Gulf Coast University students were given warnings after the weekend. On their drive home, they found a dead alligator, and they thought, "Hey, let's take this alligator." back to the university dorm room and snap some pictures with it. They did a Chubbs Peterson from Happy Gilmore? Did they do that? Well, something I, like that. I don't, yeah, I, I didn't watch that you show. You know the gator that got your hand, Chubbs? I got his head. <laughs> <laughs> they, they did a Chubbs Peterson, and they, put the, they loaded the gator up, took it up to the dorm room, took a bunch of pictures. The gator was dead. Like, there's that scary Tommy Boy moment when the deer they thought was dead wakes up in the backseat. That happens. didn't happen. It happens. But these guys got fined and in trouble because you're not allowed to take roadkill gators and take them up to the dorm room. 
Man, no of course fun. you're not allowed no to do fun. That. But Jeez. think how fun that would be to like Florida put, Gulf Coast. You put a you tuck a Dope gator City. into your roommate's bed. I mean, tell me that wouldn't be funny. That's I hilarious. That's terrifying. A, That's actually put terrifying. A horse's head. If I do that, but would yeah. you? Wow. Where would one get a horse's head? I don't know. They Ask got, the Godfather. The Ask the Godfather. Okay, so what I want to know is your. I want to know your best college prank. <laughs> well, I don't know that this was a prank, but one of my roommates thought it'd be funny to. Uh, Run with a bear head, and that's it. Uh, by the duck pond. Wow! <laughs> <South of> campus. <laughs> oh, holy cow! Uh, BYU he was, campus. He was bear that night. <laughs> he was bear, B A R E, with a bear head. I don't want to call out names, but Ken McKenzie was, <laughs> was his name. <laughs> and he ran by the night. duck pond. Yeah. Oh, a lot of lot of goodness. lot of first that night at the duck pond. That's great. Well, well, uh, security will be looking for Ken McKenzie. That's yeah. kind of scary. Too late. He's outie. <laughs> He's outie, yeah. Oh, he is definitely outie. Now, is is Ken McKenzie a pseudo name for you? Is this a is this a a name you're going oh, under? For me? Yeah, no, no. This, this wasn't you. No, but I would have told you a long time ago if it was me. But were you the guy that gave the idea? No. Come on. Were you the guy that picked him up in the car, awkwardly driving him back to his apartment? I was one of the people in the car. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Did you think about just locking the door and not letting him back in? That would have been. That would, that would be he turning would, the joke on him. He wouldn't have cared. No, he would. He's he's from Canada. He doesn't care. Oh, he's he's one of them Canadians. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's Closer. like he's like I'll just find a hockey rink and. Just, yeah, those guys run around without their clothes on all the time. That's really funny. Okay, so Spencer, um, you got top any that. dirt? Top I that. I can't top that. <laughs> yeah, I'm not even going to try. Try to bottom it then. <laughs> um, let's see. I can tell you, we're running out of time. I'll tell you a funny story about my 23rd birthday and uh, something that happened between my wife and I. But I'll do that tomorrow because oh my we don't have much time. That's a great tease. Okay. okay. 23rd birthday? 23rd birthday. 23rd birthday between yes. wife and Spencer. Okay. Yes. We'll be sure to get to that tomorrow. Okay. A little tease for tomorrow. Now, your show, you guys are still going to do your show today, right? Of course we are. Okay. Today is exciting. We have a Super Bowl champion coach. How show today, cool. BYU tight end Brian Billick of the Baltimore Ravens yeah. in 2000 Super Bowl 35, the, maybe the greatest defense ever. The 85 Bears are like what? One of the most respected minds in the game. Broadcast no for kidding. a long time. Yeah, totally. Yeah, he he's on the show. He's, he's on, on your show, show. He's on your show today. He's yes. on our show today. Burning our corneas with a Super Bowl ring in yeah. seven and a half minutes. He will be on your show. Yeah, and it's a long it's a long convo. It's like. 15, 18 minutes. Well, I saw that he gave a pump-up talk to the football team. Well, he gave a pump-up talk to BYU Sports Nation. Yeah. Holy cow. This is going to be moving. Yeah, it's going to be awesome. Check it out. See yep. if he'll let you try on the ring. Um, Just ask. If you taped it, yeah. uh, probably not. <laughs> yeah. Try it on your wrist. <laughs> Dang it. Things we should have done, but we didn't. Darn I it. didn't dare ask him that. My wife said that, too. She's like, did you ask to try it on? I'm like, no. You don't do Can that. It's a very wear, personal I met you thing. like 20 minutes not, ago. Can I wear your Super Bowl ring? Yeah. Another guy does not ask another guy to try his ring. No, and guess what? Vladimir Putin asked uh, Robert Kraft, the Patriots owner, <gasps> right. if he could Keep have the, one of his yeah. rings. And so he thought, yeah, he just wants to try it on. He never gave it back. He Are took you serious? It. I yeah. am dead serious. Totally true. Get another thing that Russia has stolen from us. See, they're everywhere. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, Google Vladimir Putin's Super Bowl ring. Super <laughs> weird story. That's the most riled up I've been about something related to Russia since Sean Connery was <laughs> set to play a Russian yeah. submarine captain. Good times. That he's was a not good Russian. Movie. No, he's not even Russian. 
Darn it. So, okay, so you'll have uh, Billick on, Brian Billick. Yeah, we're going to discuss kick times, too. There, there's this potential proposition to the NCAA that coaches want to dictate some kick times. So many late nights. Uh, yeah, good so point. So what's, what's, the, what's the ideal kick time for BYU football? Okay. We're going to discuss that. That's good. That's a good. That's a good show. Mm-hmm. Anything else? You got anything bigger than that? I've got a brand new. Poem. Anything bigger than that? I've got yeah. a brand just... new poem for everybody today. Do you? A yeah, lim- that's is not it a, a limerick? I have a brand new poem oh. in relation to the late kick times for BYU football fans. How long did that take to make? Um, I thought about it for a good twenty minutes, probably. Wow. Well, not twenty. Like if you put, a lot. if you put all the time together, probably five minutes. <laughs> it was over a twenty-minute span, though. Yeah. That's- Traditionally, your decision-making amount of time. So that's that's good. it. So so we know this is going to be good because this is to have your head wrapped around anything for five minutes is a big deal. Yeah, like can, but it wasn't consecutive. So who knows? yeah, yeah, it might be yeah. just okay. I'm, so Brian, kick times and poems. Sounds like a home run. Yeah, yeah. And if you can't tell, the, snark, the Snarknado is out in full force today, Jerem Jordan. Speaking of homers, we'll have... Uh, <laughs> Snarknado. <laughs> speaking of homers, Spencer will be on the show today, as well as Caitlin Larson-Aldridge <laughs> of BYU Softball. See? This is great. <laughs> it's, it's fresh today, man. No! <laughs> Good luck with that, boys. Yeah. Snarknado yep. is out. I've never heard Jerem referred to as that. That's cool. <laughs> okay. Good time, boys. All right. Knock them dead. I can tell it's going to be a great show. And happy Thomas Jefferson Day. Uh, you know, these guys, they love Thomas Jefferson. Who doesn't? You know, number three. His slave probably didn't love him. Well, apparently one of them did. It's the story. It's out there. <sighs> so much to talk about. So we got the Gators in the dorm. And one of the things we like to do, because we're big into this idea called Gator Ball, where I'm trying to revive American baseball, um, where we just add a little excitement to the baseball game by throwing some Gators onto the field and then chumming the baselines and the bases and the players' uniforms with a nice soak overnight in some chicken chum. Yes. And because of that, and anytime we now refer to anything that has to do with gators, the 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 big wigs upstairs would like me to just play this little disclaimer. The staff and management of BYU Radio do not condone the housing and boarding of alligators or any other illegally acquired reptiles in any private domicile. Isn't that just what Don sounds like? He you cannot get that exactly. guy to slow down. No, you should have, like if you, when you go through your performance review with him, it's exactly what it sounds like. I come out and I think I tell you, like you ask me how it went, and I say, I think I heard the words like, uh, you know, um, good domicile. And, yes, but other than that, it's all it's the guy. He's a highly trained professional. You know what I mean? I cannot speak that fast. Well, you know, he's just got a little button. You just twist this knob on his shoulder, and he just speeds right up. You can get through a meeting with Don in a few minutes. Normally, it takes an hour. Yeah, longer if he has a short, though. Yeah. Hopefully he's not listening. Uh, here's, a, here's a crazy story. A dog um, barks and the owners get shot in the thigh. Listen to this. A Florida man, his uh, dog bark caused a twenty-five caliber bite. Matthew Cole, 50, was sleeping in a recliner around 10 p.m. Sunday night when one of his dogs started barking. A report from the county sheriff's office said the barking startled Cole awake and uh, caused him to jump from a recliner and knocked a 25 caliber handgun off a nearby table. Ow! Ow! Ah! 
audio from the scene. Uh, the gun discharged when it hit the floor. And boy, did obviously in pain, in incredible pain, shot him right in the thigh. The report said Cole, who lives alone, called a friend to take him to the hospital for treatment. What do you do with the dog? You know, how do you reprimand the dog? And should you reprimand the dog? We'll give you details on that tomorrow. Do you reprimand a dog just for barking? No, that's what dogs do. But he was startled. And what you might want to do is not put your loaded handgun on a shelf where you're sleeping. Uh, Now to the hero of the day. Our heroic commuter wrestles a knife man who stormed a London bus. Listen to this. A hero commuter wrestled and fought off a knife man who stormed a busy uh, bus in London. Video footage shows a fierce struggle as the brave commuter rips the blade away from the alleged attacker who flees out of the bus and down the street as the emergency alarm blares. As he runs away, the knife man shouts, you'll never take my life. The unknown hero, who is now holding what appears to be a kitchen knife and has blood uh, coming out of several gashes on his wrist and hand and head, a Metropolitan Police spokesman said officers on London Ambulance Service attended and found a man in his 20s with minor lacerations to his hand and head. He was taken to the hospital where he was treated for injuries. He has now been discharged. There have been no arrests and inquiries continue into the situation. But he is the hero of the day, the unknown commuter. Who just took on a knife, a guy with a knife. Unbelievable. That's heroics right there, folks. Again, to be a hero, maybe you won't ever have to face such a scary situation. You might just have to go home at night and make dinner and make it another day and get your kids to bed. Sometimes the best heroes are the ones right at home, moms and dads, neighbors, friends, everybody that picks up to help us get uh, through this crazy thing we call life. That's why we do the show. We'll be back again tomorrow to give you more ideas, more information to help you live longer, love stronger. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Until tomorrow, make it a great one, and let's take care of each other.